BBC World Service News. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Happy Monday to you. Hope uh, all is going well with you so far as you're getting back at it, back in the swing of things. Today we will be... Uh, we got a lot to cover. I'm joined, of course, by Terry South and Jeffrey Liam Simpson. So much to cover today, including the video. We'll talk a little bit about the video of President Trump that he retweeted of him hitting a golf ball that actually uh, then jokingly hits Hillary Clinton and knocks her out on a airplane. Yes. It, uh, did you see where the video came from? No. Where did it come from? A site that the president of the United States probably shouldn't be retweeting from. Really? Wow. That's embarrassing. Yeah. So, and so he retweets it. It disappeared quickly. Well, he was just having fun. If it was him. But was it, was it, was it the joke that, I mean, did it get pulled off because it was inappropriate because it involved Mrs. Clinton? Not clear. Or was it pulled off because of where it was, where it originated? The the origin of of, of the video. Um, and you know the content of the video both have questions, and it was just it just went away. Yeah. So there's no. It may come up at a press conference if they have one today. Oh, if sure. it does, we'll probably not get an answer and be told we'll check on that and then never follow up. He wasn't pleased with the way his hair looked in the video, so it, he it took was, it down. It was really choppy editing. You can't go from an outdoor scene with President Trump on the golf course, then to Mrs. Clinton tripping as she gets on an airplane with a ball hitting her in the back. Why not? It's just bad editing. Hmm. I learned that in my editing class in college. That's that's it's a jump cut. It's a jump edit. Is that what they call it? And yes. you, you can't. It needs to have a more fluid um, edit or something in between. Maybe I don't know. Maybe a beautiful picture. I don't know. It's it's just again craziness that if the president would stop tweeting, these little things may not make as big of a deal. But how do you stop art? <laughs> That's the question we've been asking for years. Hey, uh, it's by the way, September 18th is Respect Day. This is the day we enjoy a little respect. And I'd appreciate you guys to start that. I would appreciate it if you would find out what it means to me. What do you, what do you mean by that? Like, Find out what it means to me. R-E-S-P-E-C-T? To me. Find out what it means to you? Yes, to me. Yeah. Well, I'm trying to, but you're just not using your sentences. Do you have any more you want to tell us about what it means to you? Oh, just a little bit more. Yeah. Sock it to me. Okay, so uh, R-E-S-P-E-C-T. It's also Cheeseburger Day. Uh, paying tribute to Saturday Night Live, who also swept – or not, didn't sweep, but they had a really good showing last they night. They did extremely well. And again, um, it, it's got to frustrate uh, – because Emmy, these are the Emmys. There's a lot of actors, a lot of writers doing a lot of other work. And, you know, all the attention goes to SNL. See, that's why I was so confused when they were so the 
The makers of Saturday Night Live and the actors were just so downtrodden when President Trump won. And I was thinking to myself, you've stumbled upon a gold mine here. And clearly that's the case because they got all these awards at the Emmys because they're doing all this Trump coverage. Yeah, it's all good. And so don't ever complain about President Trump if you're in Hollywood. You're making hay. Yeah. Yeah. You're getting Emmys. And many, you know. The, the neat thing is, at least they're giving their they're they're recognizing who's really bringing them the Emmy. I think they're just they're determined to give everybody an award except Donald Trump. It's true. Even Sean Spicer showed up. A little rebrand for the Spicer, Spicy Spice. Apparently, he's going to be starting a new show, his own show, which is a cooking show about how to use more spice in your cooking recipes. Here's the clip from him on the Emmys. Is there anyone who could say how big the audience is? Sean, do you know? Both in person and around the world. Melissa McCarthy, everybody, give it up. By the way, I think I think his uh, standing ovation and applause was was much longer than whatever President Trump got. Yeah, that's great. That is that really is a very grown up thing to do because he was beat up by the press and now he shows up at the Emmys and kills it. Now he's going to be selling more and more books when he finally gets his book done. Whenever that may be. Whenever that may be. I think they missed, They misspoke, though. They, they said he was Melissa McCarthy. I think it, it, they, it they're was still a joke. getting those things confused. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was a joke? Yeah. They didn't mean that? No. Okay. Good to know. Good to know. We'll cover uh, – we'll give you more and more of the uh, updates from um, the Emmys because I'm sure Jeff's going to mention three more shows from the Emmys. Stranger Things. Okay. I don't think it won anything. I don't no. think it did. Handmaid's Tale won pretty much everything. Yeah. Well, uh, anything with a tail will. Well, and uh, Big Little Lies from HBO also won a lot. See? You'll probably get more of that on the Friday, your Friday show. Hmm. Screen cleaning. You got it right. I give you a chance to pitch it, and you just went quiet on me. Anyway, we'll get to all of that fun stuff. Plus, uh, we're also going to get into how childhood trauma can affect mental and physical health into adulthood. So the little things that happen to you as a child, we'll be talking about how the what Im- big impact it has throughout uh, your life. But first, let's get to the real headlines with uh, Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the country we should be paying attention to? New York police and a host of federal agencies are preparing for the annual traffic and security nightmare known as the United Nations General Assembly, featuring a week of speeches by U.S. President Donald Trump and a parade of other dignitaries. The meetings, meeting of the world's top leaders and diplomats scheduled to begin on Tuesday, though they're having meetings as we speak. Uh, will bring street closures, thousands of police officers, hundreds of protesters to midtown Manhattan, an area already plagued with gridlock on an average weekday. You know, it's the equivalent of the Super Bowl of security, said J. Peter Donald, spokesperson for the New York City Police Department. Trump will be on hand Monday and Tuesday when he will address the body of world leaders for the first time. So today he's in some meetings. I don't know if he's speaking. Tomorrow's his big, like, I'm addressing everybody. Yeah. Stop the world. Tomorrow, yeah, that, that's... New York loves it when 
the UN's in session and also when Donald Trump is getting ready to do anything in New York City. Right. They just love him. Just adds to the chaos. And every single uh, dignitary has a Secret Service yeah. attachment with them. This is where the, the Secret Service makes all their the, money. The last thing you want is anyone having any sort of problem, any attack or anything happening uh, on our soil. Just get them in, get them yeah. through the business and get them out of country, you know. So it's kind of a, a chaos-related situation. But... Um, We'll be able to hear President Trump address the organization he doesn't have a high standard of opinion for. No, he's, yeah. He's, he's even said this morning that they're not quite living up to their mission or the money that's given to them to achieve that mission. Oh, boy. He admitted that? That's what he said. Wow. No, well, they, they meaning the U.N. Oh, I see. He's living up to his mission. Oh, sure. Okay. And the money he gets. Right, Absolutely. Most of them get that confused. Yeah. Four American tourists were hit with an acid attack in Marseille's France on Sunday. The uh, female tourists were sprayed in the face of the city's main train station. Two of them were taken to hospital. A uh, 41-year-old woman was arrested, officials said. It's unclear whether the incident is terror-related. I've seen reports. I believe that they're saying that it's not. She's just right. kind of motivated by whatever reason to do it, not terror, terrorism. Uh, Boston College reported that the four Americans, all women in their 20s, are students studying abroad. Mm. So they're Boston College students. They got hit in the face with acid. They're recovering, but who knows what the acid that will do scary. to them. That is scary. Uh, seems random with totally the attack. Random. So, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson on Sunday said President Trump is open to remaining in the Paris Climate Accord under the right conditions. The president said he's open to finding those conditions where he can remain engaged with others on what we all agree is still a changing or challenging issue, Tillerson said on CBS's Face the Nation. The comments came a day after the White House denied a Wall Street Journal report that made similar claims. In a statement, Deputy Press Secretary Lindsey Walter said there has been no change in the U.S. position on the Paris Agreement, but added a caveat as the president has made abundantly clear the U.S. is withdrawing unless we can re-enter on terms that are more favorable to our country. Also on Sunday, National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster said on Fox News that Trump is absolutely not reconsidering pulling out of the climate accord. That's a false report. So Tillerson said he is, or he's open to it. Yeah, he's open to it. McMaster says not not in any condition is this happening. And the White House said no, but, you know, we're thinking about it. Okay, so the neat thing is... No one's on the same page. Trump administration on three different pages. (laughs) Do you remember when we used to correlate between the three... Maybe, we'd have one spokesperson. Maybe a morning say phone call thing. before the Sunday shows. Yeah, kind of get on board. Okay, we're all saying this, right? Okay, go ahead. Okay, now, yeah, yeah. yeah. But instead, we get. The, who knows if someone has three day old information mm-hmm. or if they all just have no idea. Finally, some good news for men that are balding. What? If you're stressing out about going bald, stop. Your thinning hair might be doing you a favor. That's because a new study from researchers at the University of Pennsylvania titled Shorn Scalps and Perception of Male Dominance found that bald men are viewed as more confident, dominant, and taller. Uh, Debatable. Researchers gave three major tests to college students, both men and women, asking them to rate images of men in terms of attractiveness, confidence, and dominance. Some of the images were of the same man twice, one time with a full head of hair, another time bald. Those uh, surveyed related, rated bald men as the most confident and dominant. Is oh, and they were viewed as nearly an inch taller on average huh. and a bit stronger as well. Wow. However, in terms of attractiveness, the bald men didn't fare quite as well, receiving a significantly lower rating than that of their thick-haired counterparts on the final two tests, according to researchers. Because of these findings, researchers wrote that bald men, quote, will fare better economically in negotiations because of their dominant appearance. Interesting. 
There is uh, more bad news, however. The study also found that balding a balding man can also uh, make uh, b- balding can make a man look four years older on average. So it makes you look older when you have no hair. Well, yeah, I buy into this. Okay. Just look at the Mister Clean guy. Oh, that guy's he ripped. is ripped. Yeah. He's very confident. He's very clean. Very clean. And I think he owns the cleaning world, right? When Mr. Clean walks into a room, first you're like, where did you get your white pants that match your white shirt? I will say this, though. And your white shoes. I I don't think he's that attractive. See, so so then you got to know what you're going for. Domination, world Mm -hmm. domination. Right. Or uh, if you want to win the good looks contest. Hmm. That's how you decide if you want... Well, no. What they say hair. at the end of the article is if you – if still, if your hair is starting to thin, the researchers have a bold suggestion. Toss out the Rogaine and just shave it all off. Mm. Well, sure, but if you don't want anyone to find you attractive. Because when, no, when you – the problem is if you're going bald, if you try to keep whatever hair you have, that's yeah. equally – well, not equally. It's probably more not attractive because you just have like patches of hair here and there. Yeah. So just shave it off and just go with what nature's – you know – Leading you down a path to baldness, just embrace it. You bring up a good point, though, with the world domination, because the the best James Bond villains are bald. They're all bald. Yeah, that's true. I mean, they they all portray it's all, are, it's all the same character. Are they much, yeah. I guess my my bigger thing isn't the power side of this. It's more the people finding you beautiful. Hmm. So, I mean, the neat thing about a guy that's trying to take a little hair and make it look like a lot. Is he does have an avenue for his creative are senses? You, are you pro comb over? Is that what you're saying? Well, yeah, just not in the wind. More of a sideways mud flap situation. You like <laughs> that? Is that what you're looking you, for? You can't. You can't. What if the guy's like combing the last vestiges, wispy pieces of hair across a bald head? It's where that, then you know what I would do. What's I'd, that? I'd put on a hat. Just wear a hat everywhere. Like a USA hat. Oh well, hey, that's what I would do. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. You really need to – it's a personal choice. It is. And and it's a choice that you have to live with the rest of your life. And and if you're lucky enough to have a woman in your life, I would suggest asking her opinion, mm-hmm. what should I do with this? Hun, is it is it not worth doing not a even, comb over Not anymore? even like a wife necessarily. If you have a, mother, a friend, a neighbor. Friend, parole officer. The, the cashier at the grocery store. Yeah. Someone just say, what, does this look good? And your, hair, your hair care professional. Yeah. I just think we caught Terry there in a tender moment. Yeah. If you're lucky enough to have a woman in your life. If you're lucky enough. That was beautiful. And I'm, I'm, in this case, I'm not even you know considering it in a romantic sense. Just, a, just any. If, if you bump into a female any time during the day, ask, does my hair look good? They'll probably say no. If you need to shave it, they'll let you know. They're no, they won't, honest. though, because they may be like, sir, I don't even know you to make this decision. So the elementary school kid... <laughs> That is getting his lunch served to him, Ah. his meatloaf in an ice cream scoop. Mm. Consider yourself lucky. Because you do have a woman in your life. (laughs) That's so good. Meatloaf in an ice cream scoop? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You haven't been to school for a long time, have you? They just cut it up like a loaf of bread and hand it to you. No. That's why you put it in that convenient shape. I don't know what expensive school you were going to. Just scoop the meatloaf? Somebody somebody went to private school. Wow, that sounds... Totally crazy. Hey, let's do a quick uh, little update on some of the news headlines with our empty news segment with Jeff Simpson. The empty news team, first on the scene, fifth on facts. 
So we've got a few stories today, and they're all baby-related. I know. What's going on? So a lot of babies being born. I I still think that my baby in a lobby story beats them all, but I might be a little biased. Just a little. You are. Um, so what's the last thing you want to have happen when you go to a Chick-fil-A, other than them being out of their chicken? Um, probably an armed robbery would be the, the last thing I'd need. Next to that, probably a baby birth. Okay. A live birth next, you know, in in line with me. So or the drive-thru. First of all, don't ever go through the Chick-fil-A drive-thru to begin with. Why? Whether you're pregnant They're or not. They're very fast there. I love how fast they are. Their line is... It's, it's, it's long because it's popular, but it's very... It moves. It moves very well. How much are they paying you, Matt? <laughs> I wish. Darn so... Chick-fil-A lovers are known to go to extremes. I mean, obviously, you're willing to wait in the line at the drive-thru. Yeah, totally. And some, a lot of people wait in line for hours just to get their hands on their favorite fast food. Their favorite chick But one guy in North Carolina loves the chicken chain so much, he and his wife stopped for a meal while she was in labor. Oh, boy. Wes and Lacey Cope were on their way to the hospital after Lacey's water broke to give birth to their fourth son when they decided to take a little detour. She was relaxed, and I was starving, Wes told the Charlotte Observer shortly after their son Finn Sullivan Cope was born. Having already experienced childbirth three other times, Lacey was calm, so she let her hungry husband take them through the Chick-fil-A drive-thru in Charlotte for his favorite chicken nuggets and hash browns. Hash browns? Really? Which Chick-fil-A is he going to? I don't know, but it sounds, sounds really good. good. sounds worth trying. If you want Chick-fil-A to move fast, tell them your wife's in labor. They did, West told the Observer. Hurry, my wife's in labor. That, I'm going to try that today, but my wife won't be in the car with me. We shouldn't be giving out these little nuggets, if you will, of advice because now criminals are going to be in the drive-thru and they're like, I just committed a crime. Hurry, the cops are after me. Yeah. Can you get that fresh squeezed lemonade to me? Stat. No, but they'll have to say, my wife's in labor. Right? I'm sure if they committed a crime. I don't know. It's not the same. Sad. Sad that we're, we're abusing this incredibly important rite of passage of a child coming into the world as a way to just get faster service in fast food restaurants. A little, uh... It's just sad. Sad stuff. You gonna be okay? Yeah, it just bugs <laughs> me. I mean, this is the birth of a human being, not a coupon for a free Dairy Queen. Anyway, we'll continue the journey, folks. Straight ahead, how childhood trauma can affect mental and physical health into adulthood. This is the Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. For a million of children in the United States, poverty, neglect, or abuse is a reality of everyday life. Though these struggles are often hidden from view, stress, mental illness, and substance abuse all health income or all health outcomes 
linked to childhood trauma, and they occur in the United States today at a very high, high rate. Adult survivors often feel ashamed about and stigmatized for their childhood adversity. Here to help us understand why and what we can do is uh, Shanta R. Dubey, an associate professor for the Division of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at Georgia State University. Uh, Shanta, thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, Matt. Thank you for having me. What, a, what a, I think, an interesting undertaking in trying to understand how childhood trauma does affect us in our mental health as we, as we move into adulthood. Talk about um, the data. Where, where, how, did you, how did you start this? Because um, you, we're talking about a lot of data out there, but then somebody had to kind of sort through it and get to the real, um, the real meaning of it all. Yeah, I'd like to start with how the Adverse Childhood Experiences study um, was launched. It was actually um, observations by Dr. Vincent Folletti at Kaiser Permanente in San Diego back in the 90s. Um, Basically, he had a weight management program, and he found that um, women in particular who were losing excessive amounts of weight successfully were dropping out of his program, and he could not make sense of it. So he brought each of the patients in for interviews to learn that actually the weight was a protective factor. Losing, you know, the weight was actually making them feel vulnerable. And so he followed that up with another study, presented it at a conference in Atlanta, and then Dr. Rob Anda, um, who is the medical epidemiologist at CDC, uh, he and Dr. Folletti launched the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study in 1995. I came on as an early investigator in 1999. And so um, it's a study of about 17,000 adult mm. health maintenance organization members um, who visited Kaiser Permanente actually for overall health assessment, not for illness-based care. And then about two weeks after their visit, they were sent a family health history questionnaire to their home where they were able to um, answer questions about their early childhood uh, in the privacy of their own home. Amazing. 17,000 adult members in the sample. That's a, that's a large sample. Yeah, it is. It's one of the largest studies to be conducted uh, to look at um, these types of adverse experiences. In particular, we assessed um, you know, three forms of abuse, physical, emotional, sexual abuse, two forms of neglect, emotional and physical neglect, and then five forms of related household stressors. Um, For example, adults who reported growing up with parental substance abuse or witnessing domestic violence in the home. Um, Also, if there was parental discord or divorce and uh, criminal activity, that is, you know, the absence of a family or household member due to incarceration. Um, So, and then uh, exposure to mental illness in the home. So it was a total of 10 adverse experiences that were assessed. And actually that was groundbreaking in and of itself because most of the research during that time that focused on the long-term health effects of abuse focused on one form, like physical abuse or sexual abuse, And what the ACE study was really um, unfolding is that you can't really look at abuse and neglect separately, that these experiences tend to co-occur and as a result can lead to what we call cumulative stress. Wow. Early in the the lifespan. Yeah. 
And so, so whether it's abuse, whether it's neglect, and um, or other adverse conditions, it's they, they have an impact, and and they, there's a correlation to tr- other issues uh, into adulthood. Talk about some of your key findings. What what are you finding that these that these earlier childhood um, traumas? Uh, how, how do they impact us as adults? So one of my areas of interest. Um, when I came on as an early investigator focused on substance use and mental illness as an outcome. And so, and especially in adolescence, because we know that um, early initiation of these risk behaviors um, can lead to their continued use into adulthood and also can lead to a lot of other negative outcomes in adolescence. And it's a very critical period of development, as we all know. Um, So, most of my key findings and research focused on the relationship of childhood adversity to alcohol use initiation or early alcohol um, initiation in adolescence, as well as alcohol um, abuse and problems in adulthood. And um, so we, look, we, we looked at each individual adversity in relationship to, to these outcomes and found that Um, there was an increased likelihood of reporting early initiation of, for example, alcohol use by 14 years. Um, So why is that important? Well, one reason is because in terms of alcohol dependence, we know that um, it takes a long time to develop, but the earlier initiation occurs, the more likely dependence is to occur later in life. So if ACEs are contributing to this particular adolescent um, outcome, we really need to pay attention. Some of the other key findings um, that I focused on also related to the ages of the individuals in this study. So we had persons um, ranging from their birth dates of 1900 to the turn of the century to 1978. So I was, and we had a large cohort, 17,000. So I was very interested to see if, um, childhood adversities might have a similar impact on outcomes, in particular health behaviors, in, in, by birth, what we call birth cohort, when individuals were born. And so, indeed, um, and, and this is especially important because in the U.S., there was a lot being done around uh, changing behaviors, especially the social and secular influences, public health interventions, medical um, interventions. So, it was really important to understand, you know, do, do adverse childhood experiences have a similar impact across when individuals were born? And we did. We found the exact we, we found the exact same relative increased likelihood hmm. of, um, for example, alcohol use, alcoholism, uh, illicit drug use, risky sexual behavior. So basically, the bottom line is it really didn't matter when individuals are born. ACEs had a similar impact um, over different generations. Interesting. And it, it, so, so um, you, could, you could substantiate, you know, by age and um, uh, in the cohort. And, and what, in the end, it, we saw more of an increase, it sounds like, in alcohol use. Um, what were some other correlations that we saw to how, you know, how it affected the adult life of these people? That's a great question. Um, we also, so in addition to alcoholism and other substances like smoking and illicit drug use, um, we found that ACEs were 
associated with increased likelihood of sexually transmitted infections, um, unintended pregnancies, depression, cardiovascular disease. I uh, did a study where we looked at autoimmune diseases and found a uh, correlation there. Hmm. Suicidality, liver disease, and um, because the ACE study actually had a prospective cohort design, um, we also examined some of the healthcare utilization, and Dr. Rob Anda published a study that um, showed that ACEs were associated with, for example, psychotropic um, pharmaceutical prescriptions, which um, is, is an interesting finding in that we saw in the earlier studies that ACEs were associated with depression, but then to have that type of data validated through um, administrative data was was also quite groundbreaking and further validated what we were seeing. Is it, did we, um, I, I guess, how much of this can we correlate to to the adverse childhood experiences versus the genetics that are in the family that might actually cause adverse childhood experiences and um, and also then be manifested in the, like, I mean, I, I, look, I look at an adult who might abuse their child might also have uh, mental health issues anyway, and then that gets perpetrated on the child, but then the child later as an adult also needs psychotropic drugs as well. Right. So we refer to this as the intergenerational transmission. Part of the, I get, I get, I get questions all the time. Why did you look at these particular 10, um, you know, exposures? Why not bereavement mm. um, or political or um, if individuals came from, you know, a violent, violent context in the community. The reason we focused on these is because they occurred in the um, home of the individual growing up, so the mm. most proximal environment in which individuals grow up in. And we also focused on these because from a public health perspective, they're preventable. They're, they're preventable, either yeah. at a primary level, which prevents them from ever occurring, a secondary level, which identifies them early, where they can be, where an intervention can be applied, or tertiary, that's not really something public health professionals <laughs> look strongly upon, but tertiary prevention is essentially treating after um, one is exposed. But actually, because we don't have vaccinations or antibiotics for these types of exposures, we have to really think about secondary treating and intervening. So to your question, is it genetics? It's all this nurture um, nature. So in one of the studies I conducted, I, when I was looking at um, the relationship between ad childhood adversity and alcoholism and alcohol problems in adulthood, um, I actually controlled for parental alcoholism in the home as a means to you know, account for potential, quote, genetics related to alcoholism. And um, despite controlling for that, ACEs, the, all the other ACEs were, the, all the other traumatic experiences were significantly associated with adults reporting that they had alcohol problems in mm. adulthood. So I'm not saying there's not a genetic component. Yeah. Um, I'm just saying that it's definitely something we have to look at more closely. The epigenetics of um, trauma and adversity is starting to really unfold um, in, the, in the research arena. And so I think we just need to pay closer attention and have more rigorous studies 
Um, and they're out there. But um, I think what I guess what I'm getting at is we're all we all have a propensity for risk. I have I'll just say it. I have um, risk factors for some chronic diseases. But if I do what I need to do behaviorally and with my lifestyle, I can actually um, prevent those. Yeah. What do you, um, where do you see this, this going forward? I mean, it seems like incredibly valuable research to know things like alcohol use, uh, in, increased smoking, illicit drug use, un, un, uh, you know, unintended pregnancies, suicidality. These are, these are very uh, much in the news regularly in our country. And um, it seems like, boy, there's a lot we could actually do to get better at I guess, addressing childhood trauma, managing childhood trauma, talking more about how we treat our children. Um, where do you where do you create or where do you think the solution should be in impacting this? Um, that's another great question, Matt. Um, at this point, we definitely want to prevent children's exposure to trauma and these types of adversities that looked at in the ACE study. Um, so that's not always possible. Right. And that's why a lot of my research right now is focusing on the adult survivors and what can we do to um, move towards healing and recovery in the adults because ultimately it's the adults, whether it's parents, teachers, physicians, healthcare providers, um, it's the adults that interact with the kids, right? right. So um, we need to pay closer attention um, to that population so that we can actually build resilience in the adults so that they can then translate that and help kids build resilience. And it's, it's like the whole thing with the oxygen mask, right? Um, Stewardess always says, please put your oxygen mask on before you help the person next to you. Well, we have to have our internal resources as adults working with kids um, so that we can be prepared for um, different situations. The other thing is there's this whole movement right now as a result of the ACE study um, around trauma-informed practices, and I think we need to pay closer attention to that because these types of um, practices really need to be built into organizations. So what does that mean? Educating about... um, you know, and being able to recognize and realize how widespread ACEs are. Many of the findings that we um, that we, we reported from the ACE study in adolescence, those outcomes are symptoms. So when we see kids misbehaving in school, perhaps we need to understand what might be the underlying mm. reasons for that. Um, and then also... As adults who work with kids, I just emphasize this, you know, find ways to respond without re-traumatizing the children. And this goes for any, one of the things about the ACE study is it was, it did just look at those 10 exposures, but I would like to just emphasize those are not the only traumatic experiences kids or adults can go through. I mean, we've seen what's been happening recently with um, hurricanes and the devastation. Um, those are also considered to be forms of um, natural disasters or forms of trauma. And so we, what the ACE study opened our eyes to is there's a lot more we need to really look at 
as well and, and, and understand. That's why it's so widespread. Yeah. Basically. Again, we're speaking with Shanta R. Dubey, who is uh, the professor of division in, for the Division of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at Georgia State University. Um, Dr. Dubey, talk to us just uh, is, as I look at it, um, I mean, really, what, what we're now, I guess, validating through the ACE study is the fact that adverse childhood experiences of really almost any sort, the 10 you studied, but also it could even be, you know, the loss of a parent or um, others, you know, suffering traumatic events like a hurricane or other disasters. Um, In the end, we now see that how they impact and they impact to and have a direct impact on the physiology and the health, mental health, psychological health of a child. I guess do we by by bringing it up and making sure we understand it then we don't stigmatize these people and it might it seems like this oh, this type of study opens up a whole new area in mental health that we that should really be not i mean celebrated in a way as you know we we live in this system and the system begins as a child into adulthood um i guess what would you what would you recommend for us as parents and um and going forward as a parent, I, I want to make sure my children aren't suffering through these things. If Do you have any insight if I intervene earlier, if that helps, and what impact earlier intervention has? That's a, that's a great question, too. Now, keeping in mind, I'm not a, a clinician. Um, I'm an educator. But what we have learned from the ACE study is that um, just recognizing signs and symptoms that, you know, when a child is exhibiting, you know, some behaviors that don't seem in the normal or seem extreme, you know, instead of label, like you said, labeling or judging, um, we need to, as parents, let's talk about parents, we need to, as parents, you know, have a demeanor that is trusting, safe, and supportive so that we can try to understand what it is that's um, that the behavior is is a result of. Because, you know, the other thing I didn't talk about is trauma is subjective. So, Matt, what's traumatic or stressful for you may not be for Mm. me. But what's stressful or traumatic for me may not be for you. But the bottom line is it's our sensory, it's our five senses that take it in, and we do have the same stress response. So even though your stressful experience isn't the same as mine, I still need to understand that it's stressful for you and you are having a response to it. Absolutely. And I think we forget that. We we forget and we do get into judgment mode and we do, you know, forget we just forget that. We yeah. Forget. And and um so. Well, I was just going to say and that's I guess the key is to remain empathic to the battle these kids are going through as well as uh intervening and and not just, I mean, doing everything we can to protect them more, but also understand if we don't protect them more, we're going to pay prices down down the road as well. And so, and then be more compassionate, more empathic as we go down the road. Dr. Shanta A. Uh, Shanta R. Dubey, thank you so much for your insight and keep up your great work there at Georgia State University. How childhood trauma can affect mental and physical health into adulthood. A wonderful article on theconversation.com. We'll continue the journey, folks, trying to help you be the good in the world. Up next, we'll do a little mind bender for you with McKenna Baus. Well, 
welcome to her house. She is looking about. She is here to break down things you didn't know now. Her name is McKenna Bouse. She's one of our great producers here on the show, and uh, she likes to come in and do a little mind bender with us, twisting our brains into a new formation. McKenna, welcome. Hi. Today you're twisting our brains when it comes to facial recognition. I am indeed. What One of the greatest inventions of all time. Now you never even need to touch your phone. You just need to stare at it. I mean, it seems pretty convenient, It right? seems like a no-brainer. Yeah. It seems really, really easy, streamlined. Yeah. But it actually leaves you in a relatively vulnerable position, what? Like legally the, speaking. Oh, legally. I was thinking because if my phone rejects my face, what then what do? have I got left? Yeah, no, this is um, particularly in regards to your Fifth Amendment rights. Oh, boy, okay. Yeah, so when um, in the Fifth Amendment, a little recap for right, yeah. you know, our listeners, it prevents, uh, it, it protects you from ever having to self incriminate. Yeah. You're never you know, yeah. going to be forced to testify in a way that makes you seem guilty if you don't want to. Right. And so when it comes to phones, you know, there's been a lot of discussion over, you know, you know a while back, the iPhone, the FBI wanted info on how to open right. it up. And I'm and not going to let you have my password. Have you can't give your password and they can't be – they can't force you to give the password. Giving your password to unlock your phone is what's called a testimonial act. Hmm. And being forced to do that would violate your Fifth Amendment rights. But biometrics, the kind of thing that is what facial recognition is based right. on – are not protected by that because it's just a trait. It's not an act of using your mind. Oh, wow. And so they can, you know, the police can take your phone, hold it up to your face, unlock it, get in without your permission. <laughs> oh, no. And there is. Boom, they've got all the they've info. They've got they all need. the info. That's scary. It's a little scary, yeah. And so, I mean, I guess you can't even alter your face enough when they're trying to hold it up to your face. Yeah, no. And so there is luckily a feature that involves if you push the like home button five times quickly, it'll turn facial recognition off. And so if you have enough time yeah, one, to two, three, think, four, yeah. you know, you and can if maybe you're conscious. It, and you're conscious, but that's assuming you're the one who hands the phone over to the police that it's not seized. Yeah. You, I mean, you really, it's this very narrow window that still leaves things rather shaky. Interesting. So this seeming a huge advantage, so big that uh, Apple can now sell an iPhone based on it. Hey, now your your phone has facial recognition, actually could end up having some of your rights disappear. Exactly. And so, you know, the law. This is how it's currently being ruled. It's along the same lines of, you know, you can have your blood drawn, you know, with a warrant yeah. against your will um, to figure out, you know. Were you intoxicated when you were driving this car? Things like that. Um, you know, your blood, it's a trait. It's right. not a it's conscious It's not a act. conscious thought. And so that's where this loophole sort of comes in. Wow. And there is, you know, some discussion now going saying, hey, maybe we should readjust how we have written this law so that way biometric locks – whether it's an iris, you know, retina scan, you know, facial recognition are protected under the Fifth Amendment. Interesting stuff. And I guess, too, um, yeah, either that or if you're going to commit crimes, just don't have advanced technology. Yeah, that too. You know? Just use a flip phone. Exactly. Maybe that's why they're always using flip phones in the movies. Maybe. There's benefits to being a Luddite.
Yeah, not not a bad idea. <laughs> when in doubt, Luddite it out. Um, so uh, interesting. Any other things that we need to pay attention to when it comes to this issue? Well, you know, there is some concerns that are lingering about whether or not the security of this technology is going to be able to withstand the test of time yeah. outside of legal issues. Right. Um, just because it's so new, maybe we're going to find ways to hack it. And so just keep your eye out. Yeah, and... like, yeah. can I print a picture of you and that works as good as a photo? I mean, as, as good as just my face? My guess is right now it doesn't, but... You know, down the line, who knows? It seems like this is something that might be better in a high-tech environment where you need a third or fourth layer of security. You know, that seems better to me is extra precautions Maybe I, your yeah. sole source of protection. Plus, my kids' phones are always so greasy and gross that you wonder how they could see through anything. Yeah, it's a your, good question. get a good bio, biofeedback shot. Well, we appreciate you, McKenna. Bows in the house, bending our mind again. Even something as, as good as a new iPhone. Maybe it's not the key. We'll continue the journey up next. We will do a little uh, empty news for you right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, folks. It's that time again to go to the empty news headlines with Jeffrey Simpson. Another, uh, Another beautiful story about bringing a child into this world. You know, there are many ways... Many different ways that people come into this world. Yes. I mean, ultimately, it's all the same way. The stork sometimes delivers them differently. The circumstances are different, right. So uh, there's a woman who gave birth out on the street, which is not ideal, nah, if no. we can admit to ourselves. Yeah. So she was out shopping in southeast uh, China on? Yeah. China on. Chi- okay. China on Saturday. Yeah. <laughs> So, oh, there we go. Yeah. There's it just yeah. needs to be a space. Now. So, uh, her water suddenly broke mm. while she was out shopping. Oh, that's surprising. The video has gone viral on Chinese social media. And uh, so, afterward, so she, unfortunately, she was wearing a dress, by the way. She gave birth right out on the street. And afterwards, onlookers sprang into action to help the woman, providing her with a few chairs and a sheet of cardboard. Eventually, a medical worker also arrived to look over the oh. newborn. Apparently, there were uh, there were not any birth di- uh, complications. The Good. woman is next seen walking down the sidewalk with a bag of groceries in one hand and a baby in the other. No way, honey! Look what they had at the store. Uh, that's crazy. did you know you can get babies on aisle five? And then on her way home, she could pick up some diapers and wipies. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. See, so, women are tough. That's amazing. Also, a couple in suburban Atlanta will likely never forget uh, this day, the day that they became parents of twins, wife Heather Yavaliola. Who? Yeah. Went into labor instead of their home, uh, but couldn't get out because a storm, or went inside their home, I should say, but instead couldn't get out because of a storm resulting from Hurricane Irma had knocked down a tree blocking the door. That's when husband Mervaz Yaviola sprang into action. He ran to a shed and grabbed a chainsaw that was cutting away at the tree. And there's some audio from this, actually. My wonderful neighbors saw me outside. They kind of knew the situation, so they started grabbing limbs as I was cutting them off. 
and helped move. I'm not sure if that's limbs of the tree or limbs yeah, of the baby. I, I think it was of the tree. Okay. Yeah, I hope so. So very thankful to them. And uh, with the path cleared, the Yava, I'm going to get this right, Yavaliolas mm-hmm. tried to head toward a hospital, but their truck oh. wouldn't start. Oh, blasted! Eventually, Heather made it. To, Heather made it to Piedmont Hospital and delivered two healthy baby boys, Stuart and Solomon. Ah, oh, beautiful baby stories. Brought to you by Jeffrey Liam Simpson. And again, we'll post the video of the woman that gave birth in China. By the way, they're all standing around. It was on a street in China, and uh, there was a masked medical worker. That they're still delivering the baby on the street, but this one was gloved and masked and had a full surgical set on board. Anyway, thank heavens for the birth, uh, miracle of birth, and the fact that these children are surviving this crazy, crazy entrance into the world. Again, do you feel as fortunate as maybe these mothers do getting these kids here to this uh, crazy battle? Well, we're all blessed. Thank you. We'll continue the journey up next on the Matt Townsend Show. The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1 855 Chat BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Tuesday morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here along with uh, the gang. The gang is all here. Jeff and Terry locked and loaded, ready for fun. You were stalling there for a second because you forgot our names. I forgot what I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> it's not your names. It's your it's your life. It's your image. It's your <sighs> I've had a hard morning. Really? Mm-hmm. Tell us. No, it's my kids all got up the same time I did. Oh, which that's the never, worst. Never ever ever happens. And it threw off my entire game. Were they in your way? Yeah. You're trying to get your stuff mm-hmm. together, get out the door. and all your Then, cleanup. like, everyone's like, well, I wanted to shower. I'm like, well, I always shower at this time in the morning. I don't You guys are usually sleeping. And uh, they were all up because they have a, an assembly they're doing today. And it threw my entire game off, everything. Well, don't you have more than one shower? Uh-huh. Okay. But I have more than one kid, too. Oh. And once they all start waking up, then Mama Bear gets up. <laughs> and when Mama Bear gets up. Then we got to be efficient, Ugh. and we we it's just crazy. You just need to coordinate better. Well, yeah. The problem is, I go to bed. They all knew that this was going to happen. Well, I was sleeping like a baby. Why didn't they alert you to this possible conflict? Because I went to bed about nine thirty, hmm. and we only talk about stuff like this at about eleven. Hmm. Because that's when they're going to bed. Oh, and then they're like, "Oh yeah, mom, I need my clothes for tomorrow." My suit pants and. <sighs> so what does she do? Does she start ironing things uh-huh. or? Oh, oh, okay. And that's when I got up and left. Do you do you teach your bed. kids to iron their clothes? Yeah, at oh. a certain age we do. What's do that? You... What age is that? About fourteen. Oh. But they start ironing them about sixteen. Oh, okay. Right. Do you uh, seventeen? Do you tend to time your departures with uh, whenever the help is needed at home? Yes, about 10 minutes before help is needed. 
The kids need to get in the. The kids need to take a bath. Yep, gotta go. I need to go to the bathroom myself. He senses parental responsibility and immediately evacuates the area. It's like I'm out of there. Run! I don't mean to. That's just how it always runs. Oh, I mean to. That's just how it flows. I totally do that. Come on, I think every parent can admit to escaping. You know, just taking a little longer in the bathroom than usual. Well, I couldn't this morning because everybody had to get in. Anyway, so uh, my game's a little off. So, I, of course, I know your names, Larry and Schmo. Hmm. Are those the names? No. Terry and... Schmo? Terry and Blow. You said Schmo? Yeah. All right. I don't know. I'm just... I mean, you guys have only been on the show for how long? Two years? <sighs> All right. Anyway, we'll get to Jimmy <laughs> in a minute. A uh, lot, of, lot of fun stuff to talk about, by the way. Today, we will teach you the number one tool... In the smart machine age. Hmm. By the way, if you... Screwdriver? No. Oh. No. Oh, it's got to be an Allen wrench. No. Nope. You need those for everything. They're like universal. Yeah. yeah. No. Oh. No. Not even close. All right. Well, Number we'll find one out. tool. There's a whole book on it. Wow. And uh, Ed Hess has been on the show before. We'll yeah. be talking about his book. And the tool is humility. Because if you can't learn, oh, right. that may be the only thing you can do... Uh, be humble and learn and respond humbly to your environment, that might be something that you can do that a computer can't do. Mm. It may be your competitive advantage. Will you stop trying to blind me with the reflection of that book? I'm just trying to let you see the book. Yeah. But this even – I mean he's talking about – when computers and automation really starts taking jobs. Right yeah. now they're taking some manufacturing jobs. When uh-huh. they start really branching out, he even, this is what we need to do. The research even suggests that if you're a lawyer, your job could be on the block. Oh, yeah. If you're an accountant, your job could be on the block. If you're filling out forms for a job, that mm-hmm. could be automated. Yeah. Now, what we do, the creative excellence every morning, no. Come again. They, you can't replace this? the brilliance that we create daily. This? No. We've seen the reports. It's one of the jobs that's least likely to be replaced. Actually, I think it's just nobody else wants to do the yeah, morning show. That's it. Well, the, the, <laughs> other, early. the other side of this is even now, if you find yourself looking for a job, mm-hmm. you may need to find a job that's not what you want to do. Oh, yeah. Maybe, maybe it is quote-unquote, beneath you to we take talk, that job. We're talking about the sewer guy again? Maybe, mm. if that's what comes available. We're talking about the board operator. And that is literally beneath us all. It totally is. Right when I, when I was looking... Well, the other the problem with that, though, when I was looking for a job, I started applying for warehouse jobs. Just, really? They're available. I need something. Let's see if I can... You know. And I'd worked in warehouses yeah. before, so I kind of had a little background that way. Every, not all of them, but the ones that did reply are like, why are you applying for this? You have a degree. I'm like, I need a job. And did, like, did you see oh. what degree I have? <laughs> they're like, well, that's the other thing. <laughs> did you see my degree? <laughs> and they're like, ah, I don't – why are you applying for this? They're just like confused as to why I'm applying. I'm like, I need a job. Goodbye. They yeah. At some point, though, you just, you just got to get a job. And so, I mean, just being able in a, in a in a short-term situation, being able to – be humble and do that kind of thing to survive. And he's talking about yeah. that kind of thing of changing your behavior and looking at developing other skills. That's right. Using your survive. humility to help you adapt and 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 move where you need to be. Yeah. 
That's pretty cool. It's a it's a great idea, and we're going to get into it. Plus, of course, we got to talk about Puerto Rico's in the path mm. of Hurricane Maria. Puerto Rico. I feel bad My for Puerto Rico. My heart's devotion. Wow. Let wow. it sink back in the ocean. See, you're the one that started singing that. I was singing Maria. And then Jeff just launches into a whole Man. Broadway same, show. Same movie or yeah. same musical, if you will. Yeah. Just. And you will. You will listen to it. <laughs> you will listen. <laughs> uh, we'll talk Puerto Rico. We'll talk Paul Manafort. <laughs> Apparently, President Trump was right. He may have been. Manafort was definitely. No. What's it called? Um, Not important at all. Eve's, Had very little effect Eve's, on the campaign. Uh, wiretapped. Wiretapped. Well, he was wiretapped before the election, way before. And, and after. After, and then Trump may have called him several oh, times. There's, but that's juicy because that's – that now now it could be a direct line to the president because there may have – there may be information. It's right. a lot of wiretapping. Sounds like he was wiretapped out. <laughs> yeah. No, he wasn't. Plus protests in Georgia. So Puerto Rico, Paul Manafort, protests in, at Georgia Tech. Mm. We'll get to that, I'm sure, in the news. And we have to cover Nerf guns. Okay, let's do that. I didn't know if you guys know this, but Nerf guns are dangerous. I saw a uh, tub at one of the box stores, a tub of Nerf gun darts. Yeah. It was like 500 of them, and it was only like 10 bucks. Yeah, you know why? Because they'll, they'll hurt you. Well, you use them, and usually they lose effectiveness within about three shots. <laughs> and then, then you put them in, and they're the type of dart where you shoot, and it just falls out of the gun. It doesn't actually yeah, shoot. It's not, so yeah, it's kind of depressing. Uh, Nerf guns, according to, um, I guess, I don't know what we call them, researchers. Yes, that's a can good word pose for a serious eye risk. Oh, of course. You're, you're yeah. firing projectiles at your face. <laughs> we'll get to all that fun. But first, to uh, Terry South with the headlines. Terry, what's going on? Hurricane Maria made landfall Monday night on the Caribbean island of Dominica as a Category 5 storm. The National Hurricane Center said as other islands in the region, including Puerto Rico, brace for impact. Maria made landfall around 9.15 p.m. local time with estimated wind speeds of 160 miles per hour. Maria is anticipated to approach the Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico on Wednesday. The storm might make landfall on the eastern side of Puerto Rico and could bring major damage to the U.S. territory late Wednesday morning and into the afternoon, two weeks to the day since uh, Hurricane Irma Uh. tore through Puerto Rico. No one's recovered. They're still looking for people and rubble, and here comes another storm. Oh, boy. President Trump said Monday night that the U.S. is prepared to take further action in Venezuela if the growing crisis persists. Speaking at a dinner at the U.N. General Assembly in New York, Trump called the situation totally unacceptable. He added the Venezuelan people are starving, the country is collapsing, their democratic institutions are being destroyed. Trump directed blame at Venezuela's leader, Nicolas Maduro, and said the U.S. must take important steps to hold the regime accountable. The president also plans to mention the crisis in Venezuela during his speech to the United Nations members today, according to a senior White House official. During the 1030 Eastern talk, Trump will reportedly ask for increased pressure on North Korea to relinquish its nuclear arsenal. Oh, boy. Everyone's waiting. Is he going to go off script? Is he going to start just sort of freelancing in uh, front of the world leaders, or is he going to stay right on teleprompter? to the script. See what happens. Hmm. Special counsel Robert Mueller, prosecutors uh, 
told, those prosecutors told Paul, Man, Paul Manafort, Trump's former campaign chairman, they plan to indict him, according to a New York Times report. Federal agents picked the lock on Manafort's Virginia home in July. Remember they yeah. searched his house? They didn't just knock on the door. They, they picked, picked the, the lock. lock. He was in the so house. So you could be quiet. It's a quiet entry. Manafort was quiet. in the house asleep. Be very, very and someone's quiet. out front picking the lock. They got the warrant because they convinced the judge that if they tried to alert him that they're coming over, he'll destroy evidence. He'll start swallowing it. Come on, that's not fair. The report says Mueller's team has used shock and awe tactics to intimidate witnesses and potential targets of the Russian election investigation. The uh, report alleges Manafort is under investigation for possible violations of tax laws, money laundering prohibitions, and requirements to disclose foreign lobbying. I wow. think he would have complied. Just give him a chance. I don't know. They also took they, they, they also took pictures of his expensive suits. Really? I don't know. Can you see means. all the FBI agents like? Ooh, come feel this one. Come this one. This one nice. is a nice, much better than the Italian garbage we wear. Silk. Uh, and finally, We're trying it on. And finally, the U.S. Navy plans to use Xbox 360 controllers to operate periscopes aboard its newer submarines. Wow. Yeah, the Virginia Pilot newspaper in uh, Norfolk, Virginia, reported Saturday that the Navy's Virginia-class subs don't have traditional rotating periscopes. They're being replaced by high-resolution cameras and large monitors. So, the you know, the old movies where you see them, yeah. a periscope, Bloop. and they have this huge tube, Bloop. and they're raising it yeah. up and down. Now it's a digital, high-resolution camera, computerized system. Because of that, they can be controlled by a helicopter-style uh, control stick. But the Navy plans to integrate Xbox uh, controllers to the system because they're more familiar to young sailors and require less training. Here, use the video game controller. Okay. And everyone knows what they're doing, wow. right? They're also cheaper. A controller typically costs less than 30 bucks yeah. compared to the controller that was planned to be used, which costs $38,000. Hmm. See, this is how we clean the swamp out. There you go. Xbox. One Xbox controller <laughs> at a time. Man, thank heavens. That's a lot of money. They fixed it. Think of how many controllers you could buy. Oh, yeah. And that's funny that the kids, they, they do know how to use them. Well, they get the special themed controllers because they have like, you know, oh, yeah. controllers based on games and okay. that kind of thing. Like, really? Yeah, they're all camouflaged or they're orange or whatever. Yeah. So, I mean, will they let them bring their own custom controller or do you think the Navy will just have a Yeah, standard? Admiral, I've got my own, thanks. I've got my I'll own. i brought it in right here. Some guy shows up, has a special box. It's all felt lined and pulls out a special <laughs> controller. Yeah. It's like it's like the gold series. Yeah. That's like nice. that movie, The Wizard, when they were introducing all these new Nintendo products and a guy opens up a case and it's the power glove. Yeah. Do you remember this? I do. Ooh, it's pretty great. Back when Fred Savage was a child. I don't think I ever owned or even saw the Power Glove. Oh, I did. Do you know why? Do you know why? Do you know why? Do you know why? Ask me one more time. Do you know why? No. <laughs> because it was a dead end. What? It was a bad product. It was just a bad product. It was a bad angle. It was a bad storyline. It was just bad. What about Super Mario Brothers 3, which they also introduced in the movie? Um, that was a great game. Have you seen this I'm going to start singing. We're be it, this the book more today. you ch- keep trying to blind me by the light, I'm going to start singing. Blinded so the book has sort of a reflective cover, and Matt has found that he can shine yeah. the light and reflect it in everyone's eyes. It's a great book. Yeah. I don't know that. Two can play at that game. Anytime, my friend. anytime, oh. anytime you. You just turn the flashlight on your phone. That doesn't anytime work. Anytime you bring up. Um, <laughs> Movies? 
Yeah. From like, when was that? The early 80s? 90s? No, it's got to be 80s, 80s movies. Really? Oh, I'm going to shine my book. Oh, on. no. See, I ask. Now he's digging d- deeper into Let's it. Let's get to this important story. Um, Nerf guns are yes. dangerous. This they are. I have I have shot my 89, son. 89, 1989. Oh, see right there. Sheesh. So I've shot my son multiple times in the neck. He is not appreciative of that sort of action. Well, the thing is, apparently now the researchers are saying it can cause a significant Nerf gun ocular injury, so an eye injury, that, uh, that are not normally reported in the literature. But they've been doing a study on it and found out that emergency room um, – uh, eye problems in the emergency room are going up because of Nerf guns used by children. And uh, interesting little thing here. Now, have you ever been hit with a Nerf gun? Um, not in the past twenty years. Have you ever? Okay, so you, have you ever? Universal Studios. Mm-hmm. I went to Universal Studios. I think it was Universal. No, L.A. or Florida. Isn't there? A, isn't there a, an amusement park called Great America? Yes, I went there. Okay. I think it was there or it was Univer- – no, maybe it was Universal Studios because – and I was a little kid and my sister picked up a, like a styrofoam rock. Uh-huh. We were young. A st- wait, styrofoam it, rock? It was like – it was a fake rock that they use on movie sets. Okay. And she picked it up over my head and we were taking a, <laughs> taking a picture and I'm just sitting there like, hey, look at me taking a picture. And then she crashed it down on my head. Okay. And it hurt. Styrofoam. Styrofoam. Because it was a, it was a huge rock. It was about the size of your chest. Well, thank you. Uh, you I, I think uh, that's the a size compliment. of your chest. <laughs> the size of your chest before your diet. Oh. <laughs> so it's huge. It was a big chest. Wow. No. Anyway, she dropped it right on my head. Boom! Hurt like heck. And I said, "Ow!" And she said, "It's just styrofoam." As all of us are thinking, it's not even a rock. It's a styrofoam rock. Right. But it hurt. I had a very delicate neck back then. It hurt. So here's the deal. When someone shoots you with a Nerf gun and it almost takes out your eye, and then they're like, that didn't hurt. That was just a Nerf gun or a Nerf bullet. That's not a good answer. I decide if it hurts, not you. You shoot me in the eyeball with a Nerf gun, if I'm like, ow, you can't play the game. That didn't hurt. That's just a nerf. Because you know what? Little things can hurt. Q-tips can hurt. Well, if you jam them in your ear canal deep enough, yeah, that'll really hurt. Uh, how about a little whip with a towel? Ooh, yeah. Hey, that didn't hurt. No, you left a welt. It's just a towel. Yeah, but it's a towel at 90 miles an hour. It's basically a whip. Mm -hmm. A little air horn. Uh, Just a little air horn cupped over your ear. You're a monster! These things hurt, folks. Sure, they feel like little things, but little things hurt big. A message brought to you by the Matt Townsend Show. Gesture. It's the air horn. Was it the air horn? Was it the Q-tip? No, I think it was the the reflection of the book. Oh, was it? Your eyes are burning. Anyway, we're here to help, folks. Don't shoot Nerf guns at people or their eyeballs because it doesn't. It leaves more than a mark. It could leave you visually impaired. 
Got to be careful. We'll continue the journey. Up next, this is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Very soon, smart machines will displace many of the jobs we know today. Not only will highly repetitive jobs be replaced, but also professions we thought would stand the test of time. This includes lawyers, doctors, uh, CPAs, architects, even journalists. Ah! What will uh, keep us from losing our jobs? Well, the answer might be surprising. Ed Hess is a, Edward Hess is a professor of business administration at the University of Virginia and the author of the book, Humility is the New Smart, Rethinking Human Excellence in the, age of smart Mach- in the Smart Machine Age. Um, welcome to the show, Ed. Good to have you back. Thank, thank you, Matt. Pleasure to be with you again. This is great. Now, you wrote the book with uh, Catherine Ludwig, uh, and one of the things that I'm noticing um, – it really is, to me, I guess, this idea that humility is the new smart, it seems a little, it's, I don't know, it almost seems counterintuitive. But then when you make your case through the book, it starts to make more and more sense. I guess, is humility one of the hardest things for a computer to fake? Well, uh, yes. Um, and uh, uh, humility is is so important because... First, when I use the word humility, I'm not talking about the dictionary definition of meekness or submissiveness or thinking lowly of oneself. I'm talking about the psychological construct of having an accurate view of your strengths and your abilities, being able to acknowledge your mistakes, and more as importantly, being good at not knowing, acknowledging what you don't know and being open-minded, open to new ideas and contradictory information, uh, and keeping one's abilities and accomplishments in perspective. None of us really succeed on our own. And lastly, to basically quiet one's ego, tamp down the big me. And it is intuitively um, hard to, to sort of think about, but it's also culturally, it's countercultural. We, you know, we have a very individualistic, big me survival of the fittest culture. And what's coming in the smart machine age, humans are only going to work if they can do the tasks that technology can't do well. And we, no one human can do any of those tasks by him or herself. We're going to need others, and it's going to be a lot of work is going to be done in teams, but we need others to, to help us think at our highest level. And uh, that's what the book is about. The book it basically puts forth a roadmap, a practical how-to roadmap for individuals. How do you take your thinking, listening, managing yourself, uh, connecting and relating to other human beings to the highest level so you can basically reach, okay, or strive to be the best self you can be because that's what it's going to take uh, to have um, uh, to – if you will work in the age age that's coming, and it's a it's a it's a it's a journey to human excellence. It's it's a, and the book basically says this is how you help yourself be your best self. You have to basically engage in rigorous self discipline training, training your mind and training yourself how to think, how to emotionally engage, and in order to do that. You have to quiet your ego, and that is how you operationalize humility. Wow. Humility is the gateway 
to higher level thinking and higher level emotionally engaging with other people. Think about it. If you're full of yourself, you know, if you're full of yourself, how can you be really open to new things? If you're full of yourself, you're trying to prove you're right. If you're full of yourself, you're, you want to make sure you get to talk. Uh, you know, you got the answers. Uh, you know what's right. And that's that's what's got to be tamped down. And it's, it is so counterintuitive. You could see that it might set up many of us for a, a major fall uh, to to kind of to not listen to the warning you're giving um, and also to just go into these situations in the future assuming you know. Yes. Uh, and, you know, it, one, it's going to be very, very uh, a big change, Matt. You know, the best research out there says that over the next, you know, 15 years, there's a high probability that 47 percent of the jobs in the United States are going to be automated. Um, and putting that in perspective, that's 10 times the number of jobs lost over the last two to three decades uh, in manufacturing. I mean, this is huge. This wow. is a huge societal problem and a huge individual problem. And we, we humans are going to have to take our skills and abilities uh, to a higher level. And, um, and, if, and if you don't, um, you know, then, you know, the, the, the reality of it is you'll have less opportunity uh, to find meaningful work. And, and um, we all, you know, we all know going back to Freud, life is, is work and love and uh, also for meaningful relationships. And, um, and the humility thing, I want to, I wanna, you, you, you've hit something very important, Matt. The humility thing is a hard thing for people to grasp. And that's why in the book we created the new concept, New Smart. Oh, smart is how most of us were raised, and we go to school, and we make good grades if we make fewer mistakes on tests than other people. And we make good grades by memorizing stuff or, or regurgitating concepts. And new smart says no longer is that definition of smart relevant when you're dealing with the smart machines. Smart machines will always know more than we know. They can learn faster than we can learn. They can, they, their memory is perfect. They can recall it faster. The quantity, the quantity definition of smart, which, which is old smart, which is what we all grew up with, the quantity definition will not work anymore. So there needs to be a, a new smart. In new smart, you define yourself not by what you know or how much you know, but by the quality of your thinking, listening, relating, and collaborating. You're not your ideas, all right? Your, your mental models, how the world works, are not reality. They're only our stories. We must be open-minded and treat our beliefs, not our values, as hypothesis to be constantly tested out in the world and subject to modification by better data and mistakes and failures are opportunities to learn. And it's grasping this concept of new smart. My ego is not involved in being right. My ego is involved in by being a good thinker, good listener, good relator, good collaborator. Uh, my, you know, my... And so that frees me up to not be so emotionally defensive, frees me up to explore, frees me up to say, I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. But what's important going forward is it's important to know what you don't know. Then it's important to know how to learn and how to go find it out. It's interesting because we, when we talk uh, to other um, academics, they, you know, they're telling us, well, what you really want to get into is the computer industry and anything tech, anything science, you know, kind of the STEM world. But what you're bringing up is actually, it seems like something that's so much more principle based, um, 
undergirding the the entire thing meaning it doesn't mean if you're in a stem related job if you aren't if you aren't new smart you're still going to be left that's right you're exactly right and yes and and there is going to be um, wide need or many many jobs for humans who can excel at emotionally engaging with other human beings in meaningful ways in other words service jobs uh, are going to be which where you where the the delivery of the of the service is emotionally in in engaging with other people social workers psychologists home health care workers elementary school uh, teachers uh, jobs where emotions and reading emotions emotional intelligence is going to be so important uh, and that then brings down all of the basic same skills that listening is so important when you're building relationships. Relationships are going to be important. We're not going to lose the human need to be human, if you will. And, and, and that's the emotional side. And so I like to say that, that the STEM really becomes STEAM. Uh, the, the A stands for the, you know, the arts. Hmm. Um, uh, psychology is going to be important, if you will. Learning from history is going to be important because we're going to see the similar problems that all great societies have had. But it's, this, it's the emotional part. Uh, it's very interesting. I'm, I'm doing some work now with some very large uh, global companies on innovation. And the big challenges they have, Matt, is not the technology. It's not the science, okay? It's the people and the emotional part of being able to, if you will, to engage non-defensively and courageously in the exploration and discovery of new things without being so limited by one's ego and limited by one's insecurities and fears. The emotional aspects of work are going to become very important. Boy, that really does sound uh, like something we got to dig into. I'm speaking again with uh, Edward Hess. Edward is the author of the book, Humility is the New Smart, Rethinking Human Excellence in the Smart Machine Age. And um, Edward, when you bring up uh, you don't want to be defensive. You don't want to be protective of your. You, you always do separate. You should be. You should be very, I guess, protective of your value system, but Correct. but not as but not worry so much about um, just I guess your your belief set or what do you call it? Um, yeah, beliefs. I call it beliefs, and you're exactly right, Matt. Your values are mission critical. Okay, and the you know the. The, the the values that underpin all you know all religions are 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 mission critical. It's it's my it's what I think about how the world works. I I I believe that the the, the world is whatever. Um, uh, and the question then comes down to okay, why do you believe that? What data are you dating basing that on? What inferences are you making? What assumptions are you making? Do you have enough data? Do you have credible data? It's interesting. I'm, I'm married to a wonderful woman who was trained as a, as a scientist, and we had a conversation the other, other night at home about a point, and she said, uh, I made a generalization, a strong statement. I believe this. And she says, how many data points do you have for that? <laughs> I said, two. She said, do you think you have enough data to make that strong a generalization? I said, no. 
she said, okay, point made. <laughs> uh, uh, but it's, that's the, we have to learn how to do that to ourselves, and people can learn this. And, and as you know in the book in Chapter 8, it takes the key behaviors that people are going to have to excel at, quieting the ego, managing one's thinking, managing one's emotions, reflectively listening, connecting and relating to others. And is that there's a diagnostic that breaks down each of those words into behaviors that evidence what's needed and behaviors that don't evidence. And so the, the book is very practical behavioral. How do you basically increase the good behaviors and then decrease the behaviors that are getting in the way of your basically being excellent at what you need to be excellent at. And it's a journey to excellence that we're inviting people uh, to join that they will never reach it. I'll never reach it. I've been working on this for decades, all right? And I still have my list that I look at every morning when I leave the house, reminding me what I'm working on. And then after every engagement I have during the day, I go through and mentally replay and sort of on a little piece of paper, give myself a grade. Where did I, you know, where did I not... Uh, you know, do what I needed to do and what can I learn from this? And it's the joy of the journey that also people are going to be surprised at because when you get on this journey towards um, uh, towards human excellence, you find out that a lot of people are also on it and there's a lot of people that will help you, but you find out that the world changes when you don't view everybody as competition. Your only competition is yourself. Yeah, and your ability to learn, your ability to work it. We're speaking with Professor Ed Hess, author of the book Humility is the New Smart, Rethinking Human Excellence in the Smart Machine Age. Uh, He is a professor at uh, Darden School of Business at the University of Virginia. We'll continue the journey in just a bit more on humility. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back. We're speaking with Ed Hess. He's a professor at the Darden School of Business at the University of Virginia and author of the book Humility is the New Smart, Rethinking Human Excellence in the Smart Machine Age. He's asked us to come on a journey uh, through the book and um, in his work of how to kind of renew ourselves, recreate ourselves in a way that we're more humble, teachable, really a learning almost machine um, that can manage our emotions and handle the future uh, smart machine age. Have I got that right, Ed? You're you're doing well, Matt. You're doing pretty good. I'll go out on the road for you, Ed, and start teaching <laughs> your class. Hey, I'd 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 love I'd love to have you because I would I, I would learn from you. That's the thing. That's the thing you're teaching us is this is about learning. And one of the points that I think is a major part of the book, and you've already mentioned it a couple of times, is quieting the ego. I mean, as humans, we have we kind of have this monster ego we're battling, don't we, where it's that ego that gets so mad when someone's trying to teach us something or maybe stealing our job. Yes. Um, you know, our, our, our ego gets in the way of us opening up and, and saying, OK, I may not be correct about this. Let's let's explore this. Uh, when we get challenged, we tend to get the ego drives us to become emotionally defensive. We get into the mode of denying or defending or deflecting. And, uh, and then we also are not really listening. Um, you know, most, most people, when I, when I do this type of work with people, and it's, it's interesting, 
you know, when they take the diagnostic, they come to the realization they got to quiet the ego. But they also come to the realization that they're really a poor listener because the ego gets involved when 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 someone's making a statement. The ego starts already churning, and the mind starts thinking, "What is what's my answer? What's my answer?" And people are start making up their answer before the person's even through talking. Mm. Then, when the person stops talking, as soon as the person stops. The the, the 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 ego basically pushes us to immediately tell people why we're right and why they're wrong. We don't ask questions to make sure we understand. We don't generally ask questions to to make sure we understand the position. Why do they think that? Or let me let me let me let me see if I understand what you're saying. Is this? And then mm. let me try it out. Let me restate. Is this what you're saying? And then they can say, No, I didn't mean that. Because you can have a real you know big debate with somebody over something that they're not debating. That's, that they're not even uh, saying, right? That they're not even saying. And so it's this. Tamping down, inner peace, silence inside so you can take in the environment more realistically. The, the science is clear that we humans are suboptimal thinkers because generally speaking, we do not process information from the environment which disagrees with our story of how the world works. We don't, we don't process it. And what we have to do is to tamp that down and be more open all right, so we can really make our judgments and decisions on how we live our life, how we work, based on the best evidence in reality, not the story that's not that you know the little chatterbox going on in our mind that's telling us these stories. Um, we've got to overcome that, and you can do that by learning to quiet uh, your ego. And the, the science is pretty clear. The two. Uh, best ways to do that are to uh, engage in mindful meditation regularly, uh, and daily is the, is the best, but you don't have to do it daily, at least for 10 minutes. Uh, more is better, but at least for 10 minutes, and then practice gratitude. There's nothing that basically takes you out of the ego than thinking back in each day, thanking people more in the moment, but also um you know, in, in, in my in my nightly prayers, I go through and thank people. You know, and my my parents have passed, but every night I thank them for mm. the opportunities they gave me. My my uh, coach in high school who transformed my life, I thank him and his wife every night. And it, when you thank people, and I'm not saying that I got all the answers, I'm just giving an example yeah. for your audience. You thank people along the way that helped you get to where you are and thank people in your life now that bring you joy and meaning. And that allows, that opens you up to otherness that, you know, I really am part of something bigger than myself. And we're all part, as you know, Matt, we're all part of uh, something much bigger than ourselves. Absolutely. Um, I know you have to go in a bit. Um, I wanted to get your take on this con- your concept of humility as the new smart. Do you, do you sense it's something that we lack personally, personally, but also something that we're lacking kind of collectively as a humanity? Um, I think I think we're I think that we're lacking in the United States. We're lacking it culturally. We have the most individualistic survival of the fittest culture of any, um, you know, we'll, we'll call it a very well-developed uh, economic society. Um, and it wasn't always this way. Back in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, and early 1970s, uh, we, we weren't as... Um, 
a big me and narcissistic culture. Um, and, you know, and it was evidenced in the business world back then that businesses had a duty to society, to workers, and to shareholders. And beginning really in the um, 70s and really going from the 80s, 90s on, you know, business changed to the sole purpose is shareholder value and individuals, the big me. And we're focused on this individual uh, satisfaction and technology is taking us to where we, you know we're basically living and dying by how many tweets we get or how many followers we get so it's you know how how many people like me it's the me 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 mm. i and when you look at other cultures around the world in asia and in europe and the scandinavian countries it's it's it, it's 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 ego is everyone has ego yeah. everyone has ego issues but culturally, other countries de-emphasize ego much more than we do. We emphasize it. Yeah, we we and we build we it up. A, we need a we need an otherness change that we're all in this together. And you know, it could go back all the way to the Mayflower Compact, the common good. Uh, we're in what's what the challenges our country is going to face going forward. We need a we are all in this together. Um, um, attitude and philosophy. Otherwise, divisiveness is basically going to put us at grave risk. Hmm. Give us the one thing we can do. Uh, what's the one thing I can do today? I guess we, you've talked about uh, two solutions for ego, um, our meditation and gratitude. What, what, what's right. one more thing I can do overall to enhance my humility and prepare for the new smart machine age? Uh, uh, adopt the definition of a new smart and define yourself not by what you know or how much you know, but by the quality of your thinking, listening, relating, and collaborating. And adopt the, that part of new smart which says, I am not my ideas. I am not my ideas, and I must decouple my beliefs, not my values, from my ego. So when you go into um, you know, have a conversation, you know, you say to yourself, I'm not my ideas. My mental models are not reality. And it's not what I know. It's the quality of how I engage with this human being. Hmm. Beautiful stuff. Uh, Edward D. Hess, uh, great book, Humility is the New Smart, Rethinking Human Excellence in the Smart Machine Age. Edward, thank you for being with us and giving us such great insight. And all of us, let's, uh, let's dig down and start uh, you know, creating more of a culture of, of we instead of a culture of me. We'll continue the journey with you. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're, uh, we're helping you build the good in the world and be the good in the world. Welcome back uh, as we, you know, are learning from what Ed Hess said about humility. We There's a lot of ways this can rear its head. But at some point, too, we live in a day and an age where you can have any career you want. You can have any hobby you want. And sometimes your hobby can become your career. And sometimes you treat your career like it's a hobby. Yes. It's a problem. It could be a problem. It could also be a great thing. So, uh, of course, Terry's been out researching. Searching the web. And uh, nobody researches the depths of the BYU libraries quite uh, quite like you do, Terry. No, it has nothing to do with the BYU libraries. Oh, so you didn't go? No, I didn't search the stacks. I wasn't looking through like collected. Were you talking to professors? Is this about no, professors no, no. you were talking? This to? is off a website called hmm? Farnham Street Blog. 
Oh, Farnham yeah. Street? Yeah, I know. It's kind of strange. Um, so it's the idea of what's the difference between being an amateur and being a professional, right? So I was looking for people to come help uh, trim some trees in my yard. Yeah. And I needed – I started – you know, you, you put out feelers, get some people coming in to get some bids and all that. And Were you I, looking for amateurs or professionals? I was hoping for a professional. Yeah. Whoever's cheaper. I had used what <laughs> I – charges like an amateur. <laughs> I used what I thought was a professional before and yeah. they demonstrated very amateur skills by dropping pieces of tree on the roof of my house as they cut them off. Yeah, that seems very amateurish. Very amateurish. The, the, the guys I ended up going with brought in a bucket truck. Oh wow! Right, which my kid thought was awesome. Super and cool. They did it very safely. They were able to. Were be they very dressed efficient. like clowns? No, they had official T-shirts and you know clothing that demonstrated they were uh, okay. from the company rather than some guy in a ratty T-shirt that yeah. just sort of showed up. The and- first guy also uh, took a pony to a party. Right. If you wanted a pony at your party. Now you think, <laughs> okay, so you wear a T-shirt with your company name on it. Is that professional? It's getting there. To the client, it is because they know you're from yeah. the company rather than just a guy that rolled up in a truck. You know what I do to decide if it's a professional What's or a, a, a just a novice? Especially with tree cutters, I always count their fingers. There you go. Mm. Always count their fingers. Or if you need a plumber, do they put those little booties on their on their feet before uh-huh. they trudge through That's your right. house? And do they wear overalls? And so I count their fingers, too. Right. So here's some tips. Uh, Amateurs stop when they achieve something. Professionals understand that the initial achievement is just the beginning. There you go. Yeah, they just stop once they've got it. This Amateurs have a goal while professionals have a process. Interesting. Right. So the goal, you're like, oh, I have a goal. I'm going to meet this and I'm done. Where the professionals, like, we're meeting our, you know, we have yeah, goals. Yeah, we do it, and we do it every day and the it's the same picture. process and we'll do it over and over. Amateurs think they're good at everything while professionals understand their circles of competence. Are you listening, Jeff? Huh? <laughs> what? Huh? Amateurs see feedback and coaching as someone criticizing them as a person. Professionals know they have weak spots and seek out thoughtful criticism. Ah, interesting. They, they go looking for it. Right. The professional goes looking for feedback. They realize whoever's out there, whatever job they have, they can learn from that person rather than, oh, you're beneath me. Yeah, right. Which, good. Matt, mm. think about it. Yeah, totally. Amateurs uh, totally. value isolated performance. An amateur values isolated performance. Think about the receiver who catches the ball once on a difficult throw. Professionals value consistency. I can catch the ball in the same situation nine out of ten times. There you go. It's not the one win that that you know makes it all happen. Like I watch like a, a professional football team in a blowout, mm-hmm. and some of those guys are out there working just as hard. Yeah. As if they were up by twenty, even though they're down by twenty, right? And it's because they, they're a professional. And they realize. They have a career, and it's yeah. going to go on. This game doesn't necessarily matter beyond right now. That Yeah, and they hold their position. They do their job every time. So you do it to the best of your ability, regardless yeah. of outcome. Yeah. Try to, you know, you this want the best success. Huge, right. Amateurs give up with the first sign of trouble and assume they're failures, while professionals see failure as a part of the path to growth and mastery. Well, we feel like on this show, that's why we like to fail as much as we do. We're failing up. We're failing sideways. Is it sideways? It's supposed to be up. Yeah. But what's the idea? We're not learning as fast as we're failing. You're wrong. This could so be true. So we're kind of back. We're back loaded here. Amateurs don't have any idea what improves the odds of achieving good outcomes. Well, professionals do. Oh, interesting. They know the mistakes they're making. And how to fix it. Yeah. Where amateurs just kind of go, ooh, ooh, ooh. Something happened. Amateurs show up to uh, practice to have fun. Professionals realize that what happens in practice happens in games. 
Oh, interesting. Ooh, yeah. They're just playing more games. The pros just pl- every practice is a game. Yeah, we need to practice. We need to do that more. That's a good one. Amat- it. Amateurs focus on identifying their weakness and improving them. Professionals focus on their strengths, on finding people <laughs> who are strong where they are weak. Matt is practicing his uh, light shining in the face uh, technique. I didn't right even now. mean to do that. I was just pulling my phone. So he's a true professional, I guess. Now, Matt, where does this apply to you? Amateurs think knowledge is power, while professionals pass on wisdom and advice. There you go. That's my profession. Hey, I've got a little wisdom for you right here. Be curious. Be present. Embrace uncertainty. Every time he goes to Panda, he pulls one of those out. Well, I mean, they do have application at some point. 75, 22, 13, 4. Bingo! (laughs) And the last one I'll share, amateurs focus on being right, while professionals focus on getting the best outcome. Yeah. It's not. It doesn't matter who's right. Just do the surgery. Which I think has a lot to do with the ongoing Russia investigation. Really? Does it matter w- what's right versus what we're trying to stop? I yeah, think people yeah, get hung up on, great. you know, like you're just trying to delegitimize trying to the presidency. The, yeah. And it's like, no, we're trying to stop this from happening in the future. Yeah. Well, you didn't stop it with Clinton. That's a good point. So you can make your own judgment on professional <laughs> versus amateur, but whichever. And maybe everyone's a little both. A little professional, a little amateur. Probably. Except for us. We're all pros. Nothing but pros here. <laughs> so having the title isn't enough to make you a pro. No. No. So doctor. Yeah. Case in point, they're Dr. Matt Townsend. Dr. Matt Townsend. It's not the title. Hmm. It's the rugged good looks. It's everything else <laughs> that's behind it that makes it sing. I appreciate uh, Jeff on the piano, by the way. He's done a great job. It's a good background. We'll continue the journey next hour. More fun, more ideas to help you live longer, love stronger. This is the Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here along with Jeffrey Simpson and Terry South. The gang is all here To give you a leg up in life. You know, none of us were born with an owner's manual in hand, so we like to provide the manual for you, giving you the tools, the information to make it through this crazy thing. And uh, today, no exception. By the way, we're going to be talking about Wi-Fi. Public Wi-Fi. I think it's Wi-Fi. Oh, yeah, sorry. Public Wi-Fi. Is public Wi-Fi as safe as you think it is? Like, Mm. would you rather... what, What worries you more? Using public Wi-Fi, okay. like at some public site, or um, using a public restroom at the same site. Which one would you think? Ooh. Which one would you think about more? I'm more wary of the restroom. Yeah, for sure. Most like people I, are. I won't touch the the uh, flusher, the handle. <laughs> I'll usually use my foot to flush it if it's not automatic. Oh, that's why there's always like. Footprints on them. And I'll always put, you know, toilet paper down on the seat. Yeah. If there's not the yeah the wrapper. So can I just suggest maybe you need the exact same um, sensitivity 
when it comes to public Wi-Fi. Well, there is that message that pops up every once in a while, like, are you sure you want to do this? Because it's, pub- you know, yeah. the, your information could be shared. Like if you're purchasing something in right. public. Right. It's, that's, that's a good message because – and you might want to pay attention to it because really public Wi-Fi is as dirty as the restroom. It's dirty out there. Oh, Terry's taking a selfie in the show. Just uh, so we'll post that on our Twitter page. Is he taking a selfie no, or is he my, trying to do the reflection no, to himself? My wife, my wife just asked me, what am I wearing today? I was going to show her. Wow. Yeah. I was going to go, what are you wearing? That's romantic. Well, I'm wearing a soft knit shirt from... <laughs> well, today I feature... Yeah. I'm wearing my double baggy pants and my... I'm wearing bell bottoms mm-hmm. with some aviator sunglasses. I have noticed that ever since you've been on the diet, Jeffrey, your whole apparel is changing. You're wearing a lot, I think a lot of... I strut better. Uh-huh. Is that what that is? Yeah. Oh. Well, when you're in bell bottoms, you have to strut. Oh, Terry, he's strutting. Is that what that is? Yeah, we thought you had pulled something. Yeah, I thought he had a hamstring issue. It's like, did did is Jeff's leg still hurting him from softball? No, <laughs> I guess you're strutting. I forgot all about that. Yeah. But that was like six weeks. Remember, you almost lost your leg. Yeah. Because of that one slide. It's gangrenous. Yeah. And what did we learn, Jeff? What did we learn about sliding in short shorts? <sighs> if you're going to slide in short shorts, bring... Antibiotics. Yes. Always slide cleats up. Always slide cleats <laughs> up and bring a good dose of antibiotics. That's what we bring you on the show, folks. A little uh, a little moment there. And by the way, that was that moment was completely improvised. Because Mainly because I distracted you by taking selfies. We did not know selfies. that you were doing selfies today. Sorry. I, I'm, I don't mind it at all. I like right. it. I think it's neat, too, that your wife is wanting to know what you're wearing. Yeah, I'm not sure why. Well, I, you know what? It's the same reason most women are like, when you walk out and you, she's like, no, you're not wearing that. Try again. <laughs> That's the best part. Is she's asleep, so I don't get any critique I as I run out the door. Doesn't she put your clothes out for you at night? No, that's me. That's good. That's good. In fact, I put them in the next room as not to disturb her as she sleeps. Yeah, that's really good. And that's why we love our wives, right? Because mm. they, they, they pretend like they don't want to help with that yeah but, but then they do they do and they and they do it amazingly while still leaving us the ability to feel like we made the choice ourselves. like she told me the other day you really need to not wear that anymore like, what, what's wrong what's wrong with this really? shoes? it's all and she started pointing out all the problems with it and i was like well but i guess but, you ever notice it's always your favorite outfit or your favorite shirt yeah. right. that she says that about it's always the one i'm sleeping in she's like you can't go out in public with that shirt yeah come on I have this amazing red tie that the material seems like it was taken from a couch from the 70s. And uh, I love it. But she cannot stand it. Well, yeah. I've seen that tie. I mean, I'm with her. It actually came from a couch in the 70s. Repurposed. Yeah. As As someone that lived in the 70s. You didn't even live in the 70s. You should have just left it in the 70s. Yeah, that is the couch I sat on. <laughs> is that why it's always so warm? <laughs> That's right. And now you're wearing it as a tie. So so much to cover. Really, I feel bad um, for the people in the Caribbean again. 
they're getting they're just getting destroyed. Right. Once again, another un. I mean, I guess I, I don't you remember. It's now a Category Five Maria yes. packs a Category Five punch, but just two days ago she was a one. Yeah, she actually yesterday at about noon Eastern she was a three. Somebody ticked off Maria. Yeah, she really spun up. She developed a. Now they say there's um, what was it a pinhole eye they called it. Oh, those are the worst. And it's because it's so small, it oh, makes it tight. more intense. Mm-hmm. Whereas, uh, like with Harvey, it was a really – and Irma, they were bigger. So there was more – the rotation was that one, it wasn't as, as you're saying, tight. So there's, you're able to not have the intense wind. But mm-hmm. that, they say that's a part of why it spun up so fast yesterday. It's not good. No. So our thoughts and prayers go out to them. Is it supposed to make its way up to the United States? I have not seen – it looks – some of the uh, – what do they call those? The track, storm track? Right. The storm tracks. Because there's the European model. If you watch the Weather Channel enough, they always, oh, that's the European model. Why don't they ever use the South American model? Well, apparently right. the European model is the superior model. That's what they keep saying. Which yep. is crazy since they don't really get many hurricanes. Hey, let's just be real. If it's such a great model, what happened to Brexit? There you go. Huh? Good point. So, huh? But huh? It, the, it's kind of showing it spin to the east of Florida. Yeah. So the Florida, the east coast of Florida may get some waves and some wind and some storms, but not the hurricane. The The U.S. US Virgin Islands will be hit, which was supposed to be without power for months anyway. Right. So now let's, what, add a few more months onto that? Puerto Rico is going to get hit. The Dominican Republic, part of that is going to get hit. Ah. Yeah, and then it should just swing up and may I mean, boy, I don't know what it does. But it could just turn right into the East Coast too, you don't know. Yeah. Not to, you know, scare anybody, but you know. By the way, Barbuda, is that the name of it? Barbuda. Yeah, it's, it's Antigua and Barbuda. Yeah. They're a joint country of islands. Barbuda. There you go. They Close enough. nobody on the island of Barbuda no more residents live there. First time in 300 years, nobody has lived on that island. Wow. Destroyed. Mm. Nothing left to live in. Yeah. Sad. It's just sad. Uh, so, you know, pray for these people. Don't – because and we're already recovering from Irma and Harvey, and now everyone's not going to probably pay as much attention to this one. Mm-hmm. But uh, the people in Puerto Rico are getting pelted. Um and all through the Caribbean. So we'll get to that. Plus, today we're going to be talking about why you should stop using Wi-Fi. It really isn't as safe as you think it is. It well, public is Public Wi-Fi. Public Wi-Fi, yeah. It's the dirty bathroom scenario. It is. So should we be taking Ethernet cables and asking the uh, the business owner if we can just go into the kitchen and plug right into the... Well, that's one way to do it. Okay. Um, it's probably more intrusive. What you could also <laughs> do is just you know use your own cell coverage. The hotspot? Yeah. You could go maybe – you could go get more data on your phone. So another and name – And just only use your phone's data service when you're out. That's another name for the Matt Townsend show, by the way. What's that? The Hotspot. Thank you. Hmm. That's a very good name. Join us on the Hotspot. Nah. Nah. It nah. doesn't feel right. It just doesn't feel right. Yeah. Oh, come on! There's, just, I mean, there's too much to own up to with that name. Half of it's right. The spot it's the part? spot? No, the hot. Oh. oh. The hot side. Wow. Um, 
But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on that we should be paying attention to? Officials beg Puerto Ricans in the path of Hurricane Maria as we were talking about a Category 5 storm headed towards the U.S. and British Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico to get out as fast as you can. You have to evacuate, otherwise you are going to die, said Puerto Rico's public safety commissioner. Wow. So they're trying not to, uh, I guess, curtail their, their comments. They're trying to make it clear. Right. Yes, yeah, you will die. I don't yeah. know how to make this any clearer. As of about 5 a.m. Tuesday, Maria was moving at 9 miles per hour with sustained winds of 160 miles per hour. The National Hurricane Center said officials have called the storm, which has developed a dreaded pinhole eye, potentially catastrophic. You know that there are people out there thinking, well, that sounds like a dare. Who are yeah. just going to be defiant, you know? We'll just ride it out. They, well, we survived Irma. I don't mm-hmm. want anyone to loot my things, but... Yeah. You're going. Maria's going to lose. Yeah. Things. <laughs> right. Maria is the worst looter there is. In other news, on Monday, President Trump opened his first ever remarks as president to the United General Assembly, United Nations General Assembly, with a shout out to one of his luxury properties. He uh, was, I actually saw great potential right across the street. To be honest with you, and it was only for the reason uh, that the United Nations was here that uh, turned out to be such a successful project. Trump said about Trump World Tower. Immediately after thanking the world leaders and diplomats gathered for the annual week-long summit in New York City. After that, after he talked about his building across the street, uh, Trump turned to talking about the reforms he believes are needed at the organization he once criticized as a club for people to get together and talk and have a good time. In recent years, the United Nations has not reached its full potential because of bureaucracy and mismanagement, Trump said, warning that he is not seeing results in line with this investment made by America. He proceeded to outline plans to reform including clearly defined goals and metrics for every peacekeeping mission and bigger focus on results rather than process. Wow. Which I think we just read the amateur versus yeah. professional, which is they're looking at process rather than necessarily right. the results. Right. You know, but, everyone's I mean, got their yeah. own approach. But so at the beginning of this meeting, yeah. he's pitching Trump. He's talking about a great building Trump across building. the street. Yeah. Did he, at that's the very how he, end, that's how he, he like, warms up the crowd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow, look at the size of this U.N. crowd. They really turned out today, didn't they? Man. And then he does a little mic drop at the end. Hey, have some Trump water and Trump steaks. I'm here all day. Right. Drops the mic. Drops the mic and walks away. He'll be speaking at the United Nations in about 20 minutes or so. Because you know there's always going to be a delay. And you know, you know, America's just on pins and needles. What will he say? What will he well, say? What's going to happen? So this we'll is see. Exciting. Equifax learned of a major breach of its computer system in March, five months before the date it said millions of consumers' personally and fi- personal and financial data was exposed. Bloomberg News report citing three sources familiar with the situation. The report uh, said in March, the March cyber attack was thought to have involved the same culprits behind the more recent breach, even though the company has said the two attacks were not related. So they, they think it's the same people, just they're unrelated attacks. Oh, okay. Except for the same people. Uh, the same people. Probably just... the same unupdated software on our computers. But yeah, whatever, but, but, fine, yeah, but they were unrelated. Unrelated. The company hired a security firm in both cases and may have thought the first breach was under control when it learned of the second breach. Two sources cited in the report. The credit reporting agency disclosed this month that some 143 million U.S. consumers were affected by a data breach between mid-May and late July. And now they're saying, ah, there was another one in March. <laughs> I got a note from them yesterday. Yeah, we just found out there was another one, but it's unrelated and not a big deal. Set up credit monitoring. That's probably the thing you can do. Wow, that's interesting. So we don't secure our 
data anymore. Just set up monitoring f- to see if somebody's after stealing your credit. Yeah, and it's only for like six months. So okay, that's good. Well, after that, you're on your own. Okay. Seems like a yeah. All of a sudden, I find out I own some house in Atlanta or something. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> That's okay. You'll be able to pay for it with the prince's money when it finally comes in. Right. Um, do you want new Oreos or do you want funnest U.S. cities? Wait, what was the Why second part of that question? Both? Funnest U.S. cities. Yeah. Or let's, Oreos. Let's go funnest U.S. What? cities for five hundred dollars, please, uh-huh. Jack. We'll, we'll save Oreos for another day. We'll get. We can always come back to Oreos. Oh, they're always there. Uh, so variety is the spice of life. Also, one of the metrics of Wallet Hub, they do these these yeah. sort of rankings all By the way, time. By the didn't you have a hub in your wallet? <laughs> they used a figure to figure out what was the most fun cities in America. The site looked at 150 of the most populated U.S. cities, okay. examining nearly 60 gauges that indicate a good time will likely be had by all. Wow. The gauges include various recreational activities the city has to offer, everything from bowling alleys and beaches to playgrounds, sports venues, amusement parks, yeah. as well as nightlife options and affordability. Got to be affordable it's to have be fun. Affordable, absolutely. What's the number one city, Matt? The number one funnest city is Armadillo. I don't know. If it wasn't for the uh, expensive factor, I think Anaheim, California, would be. Well, there's also the traffic factor. That's a good point. And the earthquake factor. The Sorry to bring it up. Number one city, yeah. Las Vegas. Really? Well, it has the most things. If you think about like attractions, if you think about options, nightlife, everything, infections, and apparently people go there constantly. So, really, I think it's one of the worst places. <laughs> well, it's one. It's a place you can't take your children. Now, I mean, very easily, you can't right. walk your children down the strip no. very easily. No, 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 don't, don't, don't take anything. Don't look from up. Anybody. Don't look down. You can't look anywhere except straight ahead. And focus on one, but maybe object. that's because that, that's weird. Maybe the, what this is telling us is we are not in fun, interesting people. Mm. Well, we just don't really do the types of things that are very prevalent there in Las Vegas. Now there are yeah. other cities on the list. Okay, the top ten: Orlando. Oh, there you go. New York, mm. Miami, Portland, Portland, Portland. I wow. love Portland. I do too. It's a it, great. City. And then Atlanta, San Francisco, New Orleans, Chicago, and San Diego. Wow. Those are your fun cities. Uh, I believe it's San Diego. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> so not not L.A.? No. Not Anaheim? Mm-mm. Anaheim's too expensive. Yeah. True. And I think with Orlando, you can cover one of the Disney properties. Yeah. That's true. So that's kind of what Orlando is. It's so kind I'm of a resort town. surprised that it's on the list if Disney is part of that. No. The most surprising seems to be Portland as the funnest city, but that's... It's the fifth funnest city on this list. Is Austin not on it? No. Austin's a great town. But these are just 10. Well, I mean, yeah, there's so a lot of Austin cities. Austin could be in the top 15. I don't know. Where's Shanghai? Well, that's outside the U.S. Where's Provo? Well... Provo's not on the list. It does say here is if you're planning on visiting Oxnard in California, you might want to bring a book. Yeah. (laughs) So there's a great airport. Or your ox. Or your nard. (laughs) So, yeah. (laughs) I don't know how all that uh, applies, but uh, what's fun and what isn't. But that's kind of up to you what you want to do. But Wow. If you're looking for options. No, I'm looking for Apparently Las Vegas has plenty for you to choose from. But Vegas is now soon going to have... A football team in 2020. Oh, is it that far? Yeah, I was. Come I, on. I, I said I looked it up the other day because I was like, "What? Oh, 2020." Oh, 
So Come who cares? On. But then they might change their mind and stay in Oakland. Yeah, who knows? Yeah. Or maybe by then the Chargers will be up for the, They'll want to move again because they can't fill out their 27,000-seat stadium. They need to go to St. Louis. They have a stadium. They have a stadium. And they used to have a team. For right. By the it's good like the next 10 years. Louis. Mama. You know what's fun to be had by all? What? Legos. Yes. In fact, this is a crazy story. Somebody stole a $7,000 Lego kit. It's a lot of Legos. That's a lot of Legos. That, I mean, that represents a collection from this this man's whole life, pretty much. So this guy's from Michigan. He reached out to authorities to help track down his valuable Lego collection after it was stolen in a home robbery. Brian Richards wrote a blog post claiming someone invaded his family's home sometime after midnight on August 28th and stole his extensive Lego collection Mm. containing dozens of completed sets from his basement. Someone came into my home. That's not what he really sounds like. While we were sleeping and removed nothing except thousands of dollars of Legos, small radley pieces of plastic, he wrote. See, he, he makes it sound like it's just a cheap thing and yet... $7,000 $7,000 worth of plastic, <laughs> uh, either with a crew that should be large enough to be noticed or with many trips up and down the stairs. So let the conspiracy theories begin. Ooh. Richard began amassing the $7,000 collection when he was five years old and has sought the help of law enforcement to return his beloved Lego sets. Uh, I believe when the authorities were contacted for comment, it was simply... The reply was simply, <laughs> Legos. <laughs> you spent how much money on Legos? Well, Legos are getting expensive, though. I mean, because you want to buy the really nice sets. Well, because you have to buy the Legos, you have to buy the sets, you have to buy the surgery that can remove them from right. your feet. Do you know how many times that I've had to go in to have a Lego removed? And a Lincoln log. Oh, That hurts so bad. The I'd splinters rather, alone. Oh, I'd rather have a Lego embedded in my foot than my than a Lincoln log any day. Oh yeah. Uh, okay. Well, that's good lessons. Lessons I think had by all. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jeffrey. Well, we'll continue the journey up next. We're going to be talking about Wi-Fi and uh, really, you, you might want to be more careful of your Wi-Fi, especially in the public area, right? And uh, connecting to public Wi-Fi. This is the Matt Townsend Show, right here on BYU Radio. In today's busy world, convenience seems to outweigh consequence many times, especially with people, uh, how people use their mobile devices. Using free public Wi-Fi networks, for example, comes with a number of serious security risks, yet surveys show that overwhelmingly, the overwhelming majority of Americans do it anyway. It's, uh, it's hard to see that, uh, you know, we don't want our inconvenient, we don't want to be inconvenienced, even though somebody may, I guess, eventually hack us. And so here to help us understand a little bit what's going on with public Wi-Fi and why you really need to stop using it is Luke Bensey, who um, is a security consultant. You can find out more about his work at LukeBensey.com. And um, Luke, we appreciate you being here. Thank you for your time. Hey, thanks for having me, Matt. Appreciate it. You bet. This is a it's a it's it's kind of 
it's it's interesting to me because some of us are so glad when we find Wi-Fi that we don't care what it might do to us. But it's a it's it's not healthy to use public Wi-Fi. It's dangerous, right? It could bring in a lot of uh, foreign. You know what are we calling them? Just just bad dudes that might want to do something with our data. No, I mean you're you're exactly right about that. You know there's there's a there's a series of running jokes using public Wi-Fi is is equivalent to maybe using a public toilet or yeah. or even having unprotected sex. Uh, there is there is a vulnerability uh, that comes with using it, and I think people need to recognize that uh, that you are vulnerable in in public places, uh, and depending on what you are are looking at on your on your mobile device, uh, really should determine uh, where you where you log in and, and gain access in public areas. Is talk to us about um, about it because. I, one of the funny things that you mentioned in your article um, on HBR was the study that they did at the Republican and Democratic National Convention in 2016. What was some of the data they found from that? Well, it's interesting. It, it was a, a couple of nonpartisan groups actually went in just to demonstrate how vulnerable public Wi-Fi is by setting up, uh, you know, hotspots and allowing people to log in. And, and basically, you know, what, what they found uh, from, from doing these, these polls uh, was about 70% of the people actually connected unknowingly uh, to these open Wi-Fi networks where their data was, was actually being uh, read <laughs> by by wow. third parties, uh, so so there certainly are vulnerabilities, and and you know this was done more as a as a study uh, and as a as a, as a warning, if you will, but you know there are people that are out there, and and I write extensively about this, and this is sort of what our company uh, does is corporate espionage, and for somebody who travels internationally, particularly, and they're they're competing. The, the threat of economic espionage is extremely dangerous, and, and the FBI will be the first ones to tell you that behind terrorism, the greatest threat to our country uh, is the theft of our intellectual property and economic espionage that's being conducted. And the statistics uh, for economic espionage doubles uh, you know, over just the last few years. It was just a few years ago. Five years ago, it was $300 billion wow. of intellectual property, property was being stolen uh, and now, this year, the FBI estimates it's about $600 billion of intellectual property is stolen. Uh, so there, there really is a genuine threat out there, and public Wi-Fi is a, is a great way for the bad guys, whether they are criminals uh, or whether they are you know, business competitors or for hostile foreign intelligence services. There, there certainly is uh, a vulnerability or backdoor for these people to gain access into your into your uh, intellectual property and in your emails. Now what are they life. talk to us about what like what is the threat? So when I go to um let's say uh, a public place and like a mall a food court and I'm using the Wi-Fi from the mall, what what am I doing? How am I putting myself at risk? Well, a lot of it could be uh what we would call maybe a man in the middle attack where somebody is going to go in and boost and a signal, and the signal may be labeled as, you know, free, uh, free public Wi-Fi or food court, something like yeah. that. They label it with this kind of name, and they're boosting a stronger signal. And an unwitting person may be there. They just want to check their emails. They go in and they log on to this, uh, you know, this unsecure site, 
And the hope is that you may conduct some online banking or, or say something sensitive or pass something sensitive uh, through, through your email. Uh, so, so this is sort of the traditional uh, attack uh, that, that we may see. Uh, now, now, certainly there are security measures that can be done, and, and obviously you know, every Starbucks is not vulnerable. Starbucks doesn't want people uh, you know, just logging in and stealing information. But there are nefarious people who can, who can boost signals and do man-in-the-middle attacks and, and really, uh, really ruin your day. Are they are they after the individual as much as they are? I mean, this makes a lot of sense if I were at a big convention um, with a lot of competitors, a lot of people from my industry. I could see that. Is it? But they're really also after just the average person who's going to do a little online banking while they're at the mall. Sure, it could be online banking. Uh, it could be something as as simple as maybe uh, you know finding some, uh, you know, compromising photos. I mean, you see all these celebrities that are being hacked with right. their, uh, you know, their personal pics. Uh, you know, it could be somebody just hangs out in an area where they can find some uncompromising information in an email uh, that they can later go and, and maybe blackmail some of these individuals. So there, there are several reasons that people want to do it. People may do it just for, you know, human curiosity and, and to get into somebody else's lives uh, unknowingly. Uh, they're, they're lawyers or something like that. Uh, but, but, but realistically, if somebody is going to go after it for financial game, I, I think you nailed it on the head, going after conventions, uh, doing this maybe on an airplane. The airplane uh, oh, yeah. is, is incredibly uh, you know, vulnerable these days. I mean, I, I write in, in my book, Among Enemies, you could be up in business class you know, working on some of your documents, trying to send something back to your folks uh, back home at 30,000 feet, and the guy in 42G is reading all of your emails. Uh, so, so there are certainly still many vulnerabilities. Oh boy, I didn't even think of that. And all of a sudden, I mean, you're yeah. Who doesn't want f- better Wi-Fi or free Wi-Fi on on an airplane? And so somebody that's in the know that knows how to do this, they set up kind of as the middleman. But then they they get into your information, and all they're really looking for, like you said, I guess, is sensitive data that they could also just extort you, right? They could just they could say, hey, if you want me to not post these pictures, you need to pay me this much money. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and, and really it happens more, I would say, overseas. Um, you know, a lot of the work that we do is for business people who are traveling to foreign destinations such as China or, you know, Russia, India, something like that. And what they don't realize is, as Americans, we're, we're very naive travelers. Uh, but when you really start getting out into the rest of the world, you start to realize that 75% of the planet is pretty much in turmoil at any given time. And, hmm. and things such as corruption and, and economic espionage are, are, are pretty real uh, uh, threats that are out there and, and then part of the, the daily life in a lot of these, these countries. And you really have only yourself to blame uh, if you fall for some of these, uh, these, these scams or or other uh, threats that are out there. But, but really, it's what we find is, is a lot of times it's maybe the American business traveler who goes overseas. And it could be a country. I mean, you know, don't discount Europe either. I mean, the French are, are notorious uh, for their surveillance uh, against Americans and, and other uh, business people uh, to steal uh, economic espionage secrets. I mean, really? think about the money. Oh, certainly. The French. Uh, yeah. Oh, the French. The French the, have been uh, notorious for years. Uh, in fact, they've, they've publicly admitted uh, many years ago that they, they do, you know, while we may be partners, uh, you know, politically, uh, we are still competitors economically. And 
research and development costs run into the billions of dollars. So why spend billions uh, to develop a new formula, whether it be pharmaceuticals or, you know, some other technology, whatever it is, why spend billions when it's, you can spend a, a couple million to do some surveillance to break into somebody's hotel room, uh, download their hard drive on their laptop, uh, and for just for a few millions. Uh, so really, it's it's more of a financial uh, you know strategy for for a lot of countries that that are out there as well. Yeah, man, that's incredible. We're speaking with uh, Luke Bensey. His uh, Twitter handle is at Luke Bensey, and um, he is a consultant with uh, Security Management International and in, an intelligent security solutions. Uh, uh, provider also is the author of the book Among Enemies: Counter Espionage for the Business Traveler and Global Security Count, uh, Consulting: How to Build a Thriving and International Practice. He's uh, he's a prolific writer and is giving us some great insight today about how to protect ourselves uh, if we happen to be using or still want to use public Wi-Fi after all of his uh, suggestions. Um, you may not want to, right? interesting stuff. We'll continue the journey straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, we are talking about public Wi-Fi, and in a study by PrivateWiFi.com, a whopping three-quarters of people admitted to connecting to their personal email while on public Wi-Fi. And uh, our guest today, Luke Bensey, is talking to us about how you might not want to do that. That's it's. We actually worry more, apparently, um, about Wi-Fi than we than we might actually more people are leery of public Wi-Fi networks than public toilets, and that's just a new that's just a new idea, um, which uh, Luke says is a good thing because it says we're starting to be worried about possible contamination, possible infections, possible people stealing your information using Wi-Fi. Luke Bensey is a, a security consultant with Security Management International, also the author of uh, a lot of books. One book is Among Enemies, Counter Espionage for the Business Traveler. And uh, Luke, we welcome you. Thanks for being with us again. Thank you. Talk to us about what are some things we can do? How do we how how do we go about uh, protecting ourselves when it, when when we're using Wi-Fi and public Wi-Fi? Sure. Well, uh, the fortunate thing is there have been a lot of security advances uh, in just just the past couple years, so that there there is a lot of good news uh, out there as well. So, I mean, the, the most basic things you can do is if you're doing business and you're using a, a public Wi-Fi, then you you obviously want to have a VPN, uh, you know, a virtual private network for doing any of your business you know, back to your company, wherever you may be. That sort of, you know, gives you a little encryption window that you're only talking to, to your folks back home uh, in a secure space. So certainly a VPN is, is the first step. Now, do we just uh, download a VPN? Is it like an app? No, well, a lot of times for businesses, it, it may be something that has to be uh, basically your platform of which your your, your company is your company would account. install you with a VPN okay. exactly yeah yeah so I mean it, certain common sense features like that and then larger companies will, will certainly have this 
you know, law firms or big consulting firms, whatever it is. What you have to watch out for, and this is something that we see a lot here in, in our business, particularly in the Washington, D.C. area, is that you will have very large, uh, let's say, defense contractor type companies, you know, the, the big beltway bandits, if you will, uh, who are making, you know, aerospace and, and you know, military parts and all of that. Well, they certainly have good security and they have good, uh, you know, training for their employees. What happens, however, is they will subcontract a lot of their business out to, you know, let's say it's a smaller company, maybe it's an 8A status, something like that, where they have to use smaller mom-and-pops even type consulting firms. So the, the bad guys, the let's say a hostile foreign intelligence service, is going to maybe skip trying to penetrate the big Beltway Bandit, you know, Fortune 500 firms, and may go to one of these mom-and-pop type uh, partners uh, that they're using instead, which may be using a simple online uh, platform maybe for their emails or something like that. It doesn't have the more secure uh, encryption or the more secure VPN, perhaps. Uh, so, so that's becoming a little bit of a trend uh, by the bad guys to bypass the, the larger Fortune 500s and go for these, these smaller partners. Oh, wow. So certainly a VPN is, is, a, is a great first start. Uh, the other thing is, anytime you're logging on to any websites that are out there, uh, obviously you want, only want to visit the websites with the HTTPS encryption uh, in public places as opposed to just the HTTP. Uh, the S is, the HTTPS is, is basically telling you, hey, this is a, a more secure uh, type website. Um, other things you might want to do is if you are traveling internationally, again, a lot of our clients are people who are traveling to to China and some of these other places that are known to uh, spy on, on business travelers is, you know, have a, a sanitized standalone laptop that perhaps you travel with or a sanitized cell phone that you travel with and even set up a what we call a dummy or throwaway email address that you're communicating to your colleagues with uh, that, that you almost just assume that somebody is, is reading your emails or penetrating your emails or getting in that way. And then when you come home, you can sanitize your, your computer, that, that particular laptop. Uh, you know, a lot of our, our folks, we just have throwaway cell phones. Hmm. Uh, you know, as soon as we come back from a trip to, you know, China or something like that, the phone is just destroyed. And, and the cost of phones are coming down so much that, you know, if it really is a sensitive project it's worth, you know, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars as part of a deal, uh, then certainly it's worth it to do that. And there's other some other secure you know telephone uh, cell phone software that that's out there as well that you could you could certainly use as well. But you know with the prices coming down, there is a big disposable option. And you know and I don't want to sound like an an, an over alarmist. I know maybe a lot of your listeners are saying, hey, that's ridiculous. I'm not going to every time I travel to London, I'm not going to buy a new phone or a new laptop. And and I certainly understand that and I recognize that. But you know, a lot of the folks that we deal with, yeah. uh, particularly, they're talking about a sale in the billions of dollars between two governments that could you know, swing uh, your your GDP of that country one way or the other. Uh, so it does make sense in, in many cases to have a more uh, secure operational security mindset when, when conducting these type of businesses overseas. Are we safe with our Bluetooth? I mean, I use my Bluetooth all the time and I leave it on all the time. Is, are, is that something we should protect as much as the Wi-Fi? You should be alert to your Bluetooth. I mean, it, it does leave a, a small door open. I don't want to say it's, it's, it's too large of a door, but there certainly is a, a vulnerability when the Bluetooth is on uh, from that, that distance from the Bluetooth to the phone. So what we always say is, is monitor your Bluetooth connection when you're in public places. 
uh, to ensure that other people aren't intercepting. When you get very close to other people uh, in a cafe or something and you're all bumped up against each other, uh, there are ways to big, piggyback off of somebody else's Bluetooth if they're in, in very, very near proximity. Hmm. Uh, but, but nowadays, what, what sort of happened is the, the, the Bluetooth vulnerabilities distance-wise are not what they were, uh, you know, just, just five years ago. Yeah. And I guess, too, another answer that you gave in your HBR article was just, if you can, use un- get an unlimited data plan and only use your own data. Don't borrow Wi-Fi publicly. Yeah, I mean that, that's that's you know also another the option you can do if you just want to avoid Wi-Fi uh, yeah. altogether. Just just pay a little bit more for it. Is what what do you any suggestions for our home Wi-Fi system or our home networks that uh, we just ought to be aware of? Well, yeah, certainly you, you you want to be monitoring sort of the Wi-Fi pop-ups uh, that you'll that you'll notice from your drop-down menu as well. Seeing you know are there new uh, I guess players in your neighborhood that are showing up on on your Wi-Fi. There is some Wi-Fi, uh, not Wi-Fi, but there's certainly computer software that you can put in as well, virus scans, things like that, just to determine uh, perhaps if somebody is is snooping or sniffing or or looking around in your system as well. So just keep all your your virus protection, things like that, up to date, just to see if if you know there are any suspicious activities yeah. uh, at your home. It's so interesting because we we are, would be devastated if we lost our phone, and yet we go, we'll go out and take our phone onto networks that are dirty and ugly, and you're losing. It, it, it's just as damaging as potentially damaging as if somebody took your phone for five hours and stole everything off. No, of you're it. certainly right, and and it's it's funny how we've become. I mean, more so with our 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 phones really than, uh, you know, laptops or anything like that. And, you know, it, you're si- starting to see now the two-factor authentication coming in a lot with banking or online shopping, things like that, where uh, you'll receive a text message to verify that the email is, is actually you. And, 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 again, great idea, great concept. But just to let your listeners know, and this is going to be a, a future HBR article as well, is that the bad guys are, are always staying a step ahead as well. I mean, I, I hate to say it, but we are almost – more reactive than proactive uh, to the threats that are out there. But what you're starting to see now is if somebody can just get a hold of your actual cell phone number, uh, which is certainly pretty easy to do. I know a lot of people in business will even have it on their, their email block signature of what their cell is. And then to call up another cell phone company and say, hey, I'm so-and-so, this is my cell phone, and I'd like to switch over to your carrier. And using some you know, what we call a verbal jujitsu or social engineering, uh, basically uh, manipulating the person on the other end of the phone to believing that you are the owner of that phone number, switching the carrier over to you, you now have access to that telephone number under a new carrier. I mean, they just want to make Holy it. Holy cow. Yeah. Uh, and then now you are going in, logging in as forgot password. Please send a text message uh, to verify that this is the correct person to get the password reset, and you have control of the phone. So you're resetting all of this per- these, this person's password as well uh, if you've captured their cell phone number. And to spoof a cell phone number is very easy to do. So to be able to call somebody using that fake number is, I mean, that's an app right there if you want to spoof somebody. Unbelievable. Uh, that you're them with their number. So there's there's a lot of shady folks out there. There's a lot of con men out there who, who know how to manipulate the system. And, and like I said, from, from a security standpoint, the technology is changing so rapidly. I mean, it's so tough to keep up with it. 
Um, and it's really one of these things that you're, I don't want to say you're on your own, but you, you need to be a lot smarter individually. And you have to use more of what we call good OPSEC or operational security, uh, you know, just in your, your daily life. I mean, what we say in the Among Enemies book is, you know, rule number one, always assume that you are under some kind of surveillance uh, when you're when you're traveling internationally, and, and rule number two, always try to think and act like a like a counterintelligence professional, hmm. uh, meaning that don't post anything, don't send anything, uh, don't write anything in a in an email that you wouldn't want splashed across the front page of the the New York Times, uh, you know, publicly. Is it is it that vital or valuable the information that you're sending that if it did get out, it would cause that kind of disruption? Uh, so that's just the mindset that you have to have, especially when you're dealing with very sensitive, large-scale uh, international business opportunities. Absolutely. Luke Bensey, thank you so much for this insight about Wi-Fi safety and security. Again, Luke Bensey is a managing director um, at Security Management International and is providing intelligent security solutions for all of us. Also a writer at HBR. Um, wonderful articles there as well. Awesome insight, folks. Wi-Fi. Act like you are always being watched and uh, be careful that you you only send what you want to be known for. Interesting insights. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, uh, a traveler who uh, got in a little trouble with a customs officer at JFK. Got to watch out for that. It seems like he was the one creating all the trouble in the first place. It's always, that's the way it always works. You should know by now, you don't mess with customs officers, with TSA. They can do a pat down. Exactly. And a re-pat down. Yeah. So apparently there's this guy that uh, felt like kung fu fighting. (laughs) Because uh, he was traveling through JFK Airport, and he unleashed a martial arts-style kick on a customs officer, authorities said. Oh, boy. Oh. Ah. So his name is Zachary Zborowski. Oh, say that again. Zborowski. Oh, you say it like a real Russian. 36 years old. He was hauled into Brooklyn Federal Court on Thursday for delivering the unprovoked strike. Zbarovsky hmm. was walking down an airport corridor when he encountered the off-duty officer who was still in uniform, court papers said. He took a step past the lawman and came back with a roundhouse kick. Oh, boy. And uh, so there was surveillance footage of it, uh, that they took a look at. That poor uh, officer didn't even know it was coming, probably. And it took three federal officers, including the victim, to get Zbarovsky under control. The customs officers were not seriously hurt. See, this is like a spy. This is a spy story. The guy must have thought he was a spy. So there's one more here about uh, another woman who did something that was kind of bizarre. Mm. Uh, She's accused of throwing shoes at at a deputy's patrol vehicle. (laughs) And uh, I just have one question. Yeah. That really hurt. I'm going to have a lump there, you idiot. Who throws a shoe? Honestly. Who throws a shoe? No, honestly. <laughs> who, who throws a shoe? So, okay, here's what happened. So she's 31. 
About 6 a.m. on August 20th, uh, she was arrested. A deputy tried to talk to the woman who apparently was walking north on Kings Highway in the middle of the road, later identified as, uh, let's see, Caprado. I don't know if we have her first name here. The woman took off her shoes and threw them at my patrol vehicle, the (laughs) officer said. She kept walking, and the deputy moved his patrol vehicle to talk to her. Capraro ran up to my vehicle and kicked the bumper. Without her shoes on. She turned around and proceeded to walk north again. Maybe she didn't know it was a cop. Maybe. The deputy again moved his patrol vehicle. Capraro jumped on the hood of my vehicle, got off, flipped me the finger, and once again started walking north yelling, leave me the bleep alone. Capraro. Capraro was arrested on charges of resisting an officer with violence and criminal mischief with property damage under $200. It doesn't say whether or not she was wearing uh, pumps or heels. Well... Apparently, she was under the influence. You know what, though? But something. Think about it, though. Haven't you had, like, your target heart rate going when you're out on the, on a brisk morning walk and somebody disrupts it? It just throws no. you off your game. No, never had that. You, no. You're never walking that early in the morning. No. Never and never had a target heart rate. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm thinking I'm 47, 48 years old. Why start now? I'm just lucky to have a heart rate. Just keep it that way. Interesting insights, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us on BYU Radio.